Welcome to episode 24 of Shit Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs. I'm Kevin Goldstein in No Longer Stormy, DeKalb, Illinois, and joining me uh, for his return engagement as co-host from his luxurious accommodations in the beautiful state of New Jersey, it's Stephen Goldman. Stephen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Let's be good. I, I, I would like to. I am staring right now. This is where I left off last night. At a baseball <laughs> reference page for a turn of the 20th century pitcher named Bill Phillips. And the great thing about Bill Phillips was his nickname, which was, whoa, Bill Phillips. <laughs> was he a cowboy? No, I don't think he was. He was from Allenport, Pennsylvania. Lived and not, died not, in Pennsylvania. Not real cowboy territory. No, not at all. What I think the idea behind the nickname was, was that... He was a stopper, so if you were on a losing streak, he was the guy who came in and said, whoa, losing streak, and he stopped the losing streak. He reined <laughs> it in. So he was, whoa, Bill Phillips. Was he good? He was all right. He he was, I mean, it's hard to tell because it was 130 years ago. It's but always hard to calibrate those numbers. Yeah. It, it really is. And so one year he actually led the National League. He was with the Reds, and he led the National League in runs allowed, which is a thing that Red starting pitchers do. But he had a couple of good years, and then he went off. This is, again, how long ago it was. He went off and he ma- managed the Indiana Hoosiers in the Federal League, and he won a pennant the first year. It was only around for two years, 1914-1915. He won the 1914 pennant. But the reason that I was looking at him, and I, I absolutely love this. This is a bit of a spoiler for my own show, is that he hadn't a game in 1900 against a Phillies outfielder named Roy Thomas. And Roy's whole thing was fouling off pitches till he drew a walk. He did not try. If he put the ball in play, it was a bunt, or maybe he tapped it towards the shortstop and tried to beat it out. He was really annoying. And the idea back then was you were not supposed to hit foul balls intentionally. If you did, the umpire could penalize you. But umpires did not enjoy looking within the soul of players and trying to figure out if they were intentionally hitting fouls. So... Roy Thomas fouled off 27 straight pitches, Mm. and whoa, Bill, could not figure out how to get him out, so he just punched him in the face. (laughs) I don't know where And that was common in baseball 130 years ago. A little bit more, but I don't know, I mean, if you're scouting that guy, I don't know where you put that on the form, that that he, you know, among his repertoire is uh, fastball, curveball, right hook. <laughs> so that's your baseball history moment to start the show. It's uh talking about baseball presence. Um it is it is trade deadline week and there are things happening. Um things got a little crazy yesterday and last night. Um we are recording this late 
Thursday morning. It is 11.14 a.m. Eastern Time. And while it hasn't been made official by any sort of press release or anything like that, um, like Aaron Boone just had a press conference and, and he talked about where Joey Gallo is going to play and when they're joining the team. So let's just act like this is official. The Yankees made their big move um, and and got Joey Gallo. This is uh, certainly a star level player, uh, You know, probably the best hitter, certainly the best left-handed power guy who's going to get traded this summer. Um, perfect fit for the Yankees. And, you know, despite a season that has been, um, let's just call it up and down, shall we? Um <laughs> They are not messing around. They're going to try to move a little bit and see, and just like see if they can do something to make the ups far more than the downs over the last couple of months. I love this move, not just for the last couple of months, but because Gallo is under contract for another year. Right. This this year, it seems it's not impossible, right? I mean, the the divisional gap is is eight and a half games, and I I don't know that there's enough time to close that. The wild card gap is a little narrower. It's two and a half games. And if you think about what the Yankees have gotten out of left field, which is something like 250 with a 290 on base and a 360 slugging, it's been really bad. And Gallo thus is not, you're not saying, oh, he's he's upgrading from an average player or a below average player to a good player or a great player. He's upgrading from nothing from less than nothing to something presumably pretty good. And I think everyone expects that his bat is not that, that he's really affected by any ballpark, but his bat's going to play up in that bandbox of a ballpark. And he's a surprisingly good defender. I don't he's know a if very he, good outfielder, yeah. Well, this is the thing. Like, I don't know. I, I could be imagining this, but I feel like when he was first drafted and first was coming up, that... A lot of the reports on him were, yeah, maybe a one-dimensional slugger. Like, maybe he's going to be, he can kind of play third, but maybe he's limited to first. And maybe he wasn't the world's greatest third baseman, but suddenly, like, oh, this is a guy who can play center field in a pinch. So, I mean, he really has exceeded expectations in that way. And even though batting average is never going to be his bag, if you hit enough home runs and take enough walks, nobody can complain. So, I I feel like it's a good move, and the, the package that... The, and, and you're more qualified to talk about this than I am, but the, the reported package that they're giving up has some really interesting guys in it, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of future stars in the bag. It's a, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I wrote this. It's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, it's being edited in Fangraphs right now. Um, I wrote about the package they're getting back, and it is, it's obviously a bulk deal, but there's a whole lot of quality in the quantity. You know, there's no throw-ins here. These are four real players, first of all. And I think that's important to note. Um, and, you know, I talked about this, like, this is all you can do these days in the trade deadline. Teams have gotten just so <clears throat> prospect hugging, if you will, like teams <laughs> hug their prospects more than ever. And all of a sudden, like it, it goes from, well, you can't touch Smith or Johnson to, hey, stay out of our top 10. Right. <laughs> and it, it's it's changed dramatically over the last three years, the, just the, the, the prospect hugging. And so all of a sudden, you know, you, you can't find a, a real headliner, but I, you know, the Rangers found two players who are, uh, you know, immediately going to land in their top 10. You know, Ezekiel Duran is a second baseman. He's not a good second baseman, but he can hit, you know, he's got a good approach. There's uh shocking power out of a five foot 11 frame. Like this dude, it's a 
big, big swing. He swings like he is Frank Howard um, <laughs> while being five foot eleven. At least it's some strikeouts, but you know he can. There's there's real power. I think he's you know projects as kind of a guy in a perfect world who hits you know two sixty five, two seventy with twenty to twenty five while playing an okay second base. Um, Josh Smith is the opposite of this, where Josh Smith is. I love Josh Smith. Josh Smith, like, there's literally nothing bad you can say about him. Nothing's, it's not like there's some 70 tools there. Not like he's made, but there's literally no hole in the game. Like, it's an above average runner. He's a legitimate shortstop at a 50 pace. He runs, it's an above average runner. The arm is fine. The approach is outstanding. He makes contact. There's like sneaky pop in there. There's really nothing wrong with the guy. It's very easy to go. This guy's got the highest floor of any of this group and it is at least a utility guy, but actually I think projects is an everyday shortstop, which are hard enough to find. There's not 30 of them, right? Um, you know, and he's one of those, you know, Glenn Otto's got a truckload of strikeouts. It's probably a reliever in the end. He's kind of, he's, you know, what I always remember AJ Hinch was the first one to use this term with me. He's a slider monster. Like <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, he, at times he's 50% sliders. It is his best pitch by a mile and it, it might be a reliever at the, at the end of the day, you know, but it's still like a real prospect. And it's a guy who, you know, we might even see in the big leagues this year, you know, he's, he's been a double and triple a this year. He's been good. And then Trevor Halver is um, kind of a poor man. Ezekiel Duran. He's a second baseman, but not really. Um, he played it in college. He's not really an athlete. Doesn't play it very well, but he's had a great year. It's just the problem is like, he's 20, almost 23 came from a big program. He's in low a, and you're supposed to have a great year. If, if that's your profile and truckload of walks <clears throat> with it comes a lot of strikeouts. Cause he puts himself in deep counts or some power there. These are four legit prospects. Like every one of these guys at least has a prospect title. And I think in Duran and Smith, they both have top 10 prospect titles. And in terms of this is what you have to do. I think the Rangers did well. And I also think the Rangers, had to trade Gallo. Like he was at, he was ha- he's having a great year. You know, it's, it's his career best year in terms, if you measure things by war. And, you know, you're in a situation where this is the, your maximum, this is your time where you can maximize your value. And that's what they did. They've really gotten into a hole. They're on a hundred loss pace and they have not been very successful. They've been bad for a while at turning over the roster. So they really do need this kind of injection of talent here. Here's my, my question though, is, we're in a unique situation this year because of what happened with the pandemic canceling the minor league season last year. So you, you described all these guys really well, and Otto jumped onto my radar recently just coincidentally because the, the strikeout-to-walk ratio that he's shown this year has just been astounding. Yeah. And, I mean, I do this for every team, not just the Yankees, saying, like, well, who could be the next guy in line? And when he moved up to AAA, it really seemed like like he might be with, with 14 strikeouts per nine almost and, and two walks, basically, a little fraction less than that at AA where he spent the rest of the year. And I realize he's 25. The thing about these guys is because they didn't play last year in many cases, we are judging them at least to the extent of the stat line, the scouting itself is is different, obviously, because that's like a real-time snapshot. But we are looking at evaluating players, and, and this is true not just of this trade, but throughout the game, on really small samples when you think about it. We didn't see them for a year, and now you're saying, well, okay, he hit 300 or, or with power or whatever in 50 or 60 games. Is that real? And to you, does that add to the difficulty level of evaluating these deals, whether it's it's us just talking about it or the, the guys in the front offices? 
Um, I, I think it does. Like you don't, you just have less of a track record. And like you said, you just kind of have this, this kind of missing piece in the middle of 2020. And um, I think you do, it comes time to, you really start focusing on the underlying data to see if a real change has taken place. Cause you have a smaller sample size and things like that, you know, and, and Otto is a, is a step forward this year, you know, however it's easier because you know, he was drafted in 2020. So that there's not like a, there's nothing b- before 2020 other than amateur play. Right. You know, Duran, you have something, you have what he did before 2020 and, and what he's doing now, it looks like what you'd expect. And that, that makes sense. Um, it's, it's more guys like Otto who, you know, I don't want to say out of nowhere, but, but I think Otto certainly greatly exceeded expectations this year. Um, but the slider's real. He's, he worked, worked on the slider, developed the slider. It's, it's a very real pitch. It's a power breaking ball. It's in the low eighties and, um, it's, it's the thing plays well. And I think we've seen enough of them to know that this is a, this is a plus pitch and maybe something they can work around and he might be a reliever and he's, you know, he really kind of only throws 91, 93. Um, you know, so it, but it is a challenge as far as, you know, this missed time and this kind of gap time and you try to figure out what happened and what went wrong. And, you know, a lot of players have gone significantly backwards since then. And I think those are the most kind of perplexing guys. Cause then you say to yourself, well, did something happen? That's and it's never going to come back or did, or obviously something happened and it can come back. And that, that's kind of the hardest question to answer about these guys. And we see that all the time though. I mean, we see that, I guess traditionally it's the leap to double A, right? Where guys mm. suddenly, you know, derail. And, and part of that is what you talked about with Halver. Love the walks, by the way. I don't know if the walks are real or, or they're just pitching around him because he is old for the league. But the the idea that, you know, you come in and you are, quote, to, to invoke the cliche, the polished college player, and then you finally get up to a, a level that is more equal to your abilities and, and you start losing value. And I feel like that that's... Um, you know, that's still a thing that we see every year, even without the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. We see those guys all the time. And, and what you hear about is like, yeah, I like what I'm seeing, but like, I don't know if we'll really know until he's adequately tested. Um, you know, it's, it's it's like that that ad with where Mike Stanton goes and beats up Little Leaguers. You're like, wait, well, he's great, <laughs> but I don't, know, I don't know what we're accomplishing here. And um, But let's talk about the, the Yankees for a second. Um who have the possibility that Aaron Boone talked about the possibility of um, them going with, let's just call it the very large outfield uh, this week with, with <laughs> going with Stanton, Judge and Gallo. Um, I mean, Gallo changes their lineup dramatically. Uh, you know, they've needed left-handed power. That stadium is designed for left-handed power in some ways. Um, and he's it's designed for their... for everybody. Is the yeah. I mean, we still have that, that old Yankee stadium hangover where it was really true. And although they they shrunk left field over the years, like they they shrunk it when they got Dave Winfield, then they shrunk it for Jack Clark. And eventually it was a little more neutral, but it was still hard to hit the ball out to to left field. I mean, if you if you look at at films or pictures of the original Yankee Stadium, it literally was a cab ride to left center. It was I think it opened it (laughs) close to 500 feet to left center. So there were a lot of triples hit out there. But it, it, if you look at it, you you can see the pictures. You think, what were they thinking? Like it's it's so overbalanced. Now that park rewards everyone, and it's not. It's less. I, I'm not really contradicting you. It's less that they needed a left-handed bat for the park. They just needed a left-handed. They just bat. needed more offense. Well, they needed more offense, but they needed a more balanced offense because they just had all these right-handed guys, and they were all kind of the same. 
and you just you needed to to break up the room a little bit. You needed some some kind of some kind of lamp or carpet to to reshape the the picture, and that is what Gallo provides. And and for the Rangers, obviously this this they are rebuilding. They're really bad, like you said. They just signed the number two draft pick and Jack Leiter yesterday, um, and they kind of they did something dangerous and they got burnt. You know, over the last few years, obviously they're in full rebuild now, but they went, they tried for a couple of years to be both restocking and good. Um, and when you, you know, under today's rule set, um, if you try to do both of those things, you are, it, it is the, the, the thinnest of tight ropes and, and you can really, really hurt yourself. Well, also a couple of guys didn't really pan out. I mean, is is has there been a, a well this is a, a pretty open question but one of the more <laughs> I, I was going to say has there been a more disappointing prospect than Nomar Mazara and I I mean I'm sure we could list some guys but I mean that's an example of someone who they right. really thought was going to be the center of their lineup and it didn't work out that way they haven't been able to find a first baseman for years and Ronald Guzman did not fill that position uh the center fielder uh what's his name um you know who I'm talking about. Uh, he was up earlier this year. Lo- Le- uh, Leody Tavares. Oh, Leody Tavares. He, yeah. I, okay. I, I've never gotten that one. Like, he's always been at the top of Rangers prospect list, and I've always looked and go, he is a wonderful defender, and he can't hit. <laughs> we have a few guys like that now. And there's literally no – like, there was literally no reason to think he could hit. It's not like he was hitting 320 with 20 in the minors either. Like, he wasn't hitting in the minors. And it's like, this guy's amazing. Like, is he? Like, well, what what's a- your evidence of this? Well, what accounts for that? Is it just he's the tooled athleticism? Out. Like he's tooled out. Like, he is tooled out. He is beautiful. Like, he, you know, Rangers pull up and they start getting off the bus. You're going to go, I'll pick him. You know, and so he's one of those guys. And, and But it never he never really performed in the minors. And it's just you keep talking about the tools. And at some point, like, those tools have to start translating to performance or it just doesn't matter. Can we compare and contrast him, Christian Pache, and Victor Robles? I mean, I think it's certainly similar profiles. Um, I, I think I have more, like, like Pache and Robles have more potential or even present ability to kind of impact the baseball. Um, and, and Rodriguez is not a guy with power. Uh, and, and again, like, he's I mean, Rodriguez is a 70-plus defender. He's he's wonderful there. But it's just that... Tavares, Tavares. Or Tavares, rather. And, um, and, but you have to do something. Like, you have to do something at the plate, and there's just no evidence this guy can. Right. Right. I mean, that's uh, one of the, the things we've learned, right, is is and, I, and I'm sure this is old hat to everyone who listens, but I still being the sort of age that I am and where I came from Marvel over this, that when you and I were young baseball fans, it was really common to say Gary Pettis can run down 50, you know, say 50, 100 runs in center field every year. Yeah. And it's 20. It, like at best, right, 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 right. It's it's twenty, maybe twenty five, if you're talking about like peak Andrew Jones or something. And so you say, well, if he gives back seventy five runs on offense, you're really still down. So we 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 understand that balancing act a little bit better now. Yeah, we do, we do, and and, and there's also you know obviously we'll both date ourselves. It was it was a different game, you know, and and you know we grew up at a time when shortstops and often center fielders just hit seventh or eighth and we're just there for defense. Right. You know, uh, you know, even a guy like, and this is a little before our time, but not much like Mark Belanger, who was the longtime shortstop for the Orioles, you know, during their prime, during their world series years would never survive today. Never. Um, no. You know, the guy who'd hit 200 with a 250 on base and a 290 slugging and make all-star games. 
you know, it was a very different time as far as that position. Now every position has to hit, period. He was really good, though, defensively. Yeah, he was great, but, like, that wouldn't – you wouldn't live today with that. Are there guys – well, he would be was a utility a, player. Well, let me ask this, though. He was that guy. He was the guy I just described, though. Year in, year out, for a lot of years, 25 runs saved, 30 runs saved, top of the scale, yeah. 80 out of 80 glove. Do you really – even though he was he was the worst possible hitter, basically. He, he was career, as you said, career – 228, 300, 280, which is miserable. And it right. was mis- miserable then, too, even though it was much more of a pitcher's era, the the last great pitcher's era that we basically had to date. But would you pass up an 80 glove even today? I don't think you'd pass it up, but you definitely wouldn't play it every day like that. I think you'd be more of a utility player. And, I, and you know, we talked about what shortstops were in the 70s, like the gap, his, you know, his com- his offensive contribution compared to the average shortstop was incredible. It was much much higher at that time than it would be today. Um, yeah, I think that I think that gap would really kill him today. There were years that he kind of muscled up and hit a soft two eighty and or a soft two seventy. And when he did that, though, see, I think you'd be tempted, right? I mean, obviously, we're playing sort of sort right, of. I a, mean, but like if, if Andrelton Simmons was a two twenty hitter with no power, like. I just don't think he'd be an everyday player. But if you had well, – what I'm saying – I'm talking about wish fulfillment, though. I'm talking about wish, <laughs> wish casting. What I'm saying – You can't do that but, in 2021, Steve. Well, but see, Belanger, when he was 25, hit 287 and had a, a 95 OPS plus. And with that glove, that is a star player. Yeah. Right? And so you're sitting there. You will. I would think that a lot of teams would sit there. That was 1969. He was 25 years old. They go to the World Series – he has that, and they say, well, you know, he's learning. He's learning how to hit. Mm-hmm. And with that glove, and they would sit there for three years. And what happened three years later? He did it again. So you wait another three years. And you can just tell yourself that it's going to get better. It's going to get better because we've seen it before. And the next thing you know, 20 years have gone by, and Mark Belanger's working in the commissioner's office. And I think there's probably also, there's also a team context aspect to this in the sense that, um, you know, think about the Houston Astros right now. That, that's the best offense in baseball. And and they just sacrifice position for defense. Like they Maldonado is their catcher. Um, Maldonado provides tremendous value beyond what he does at the plate, which isn't much. Um, and they're happy to sacrifice that offense to just to have him catching. Um, but you can do that when one through eight are monsters. Yes. Um, man. Okay, we have so many more things to talk about. Uh, last <laughs> night, Milwaukee Brewers. Eduardo Escobar, another perfect fit kind of thing. Um, you know, they've had problems with their infielders and, you know, first base and third base have not really worked out for them. And, um, you know, Keston here continued to struggle. Dan Vogelbach got hurt and wasn't that great in the first place. Um, third base, you know, they tried a lot of things, including Travis Shaw, who wasn't good and then got hurt. Um, like Escobar brings a lot of lineup flexibility to the Brewers. Um, he's a really good player and he's also, like bring something beyond just what he has in the field. This is a this is an eighty makeup guy who kind of changes the tone of your clubhouse. Um, you know, I think this is a really good move for them. Were you surprised, by the way? Uh, and they've been spotting him at third since they picked up Willie Adamas. That yeah. Luis Urias has thirteen home runs to this point. I am. I think everybody is. Um, <laughs> and I, I think he's a nice little player. I think I think he's a valuable piece of a big league roster. I think he's much more valuable if you can spot him and give him three to 400 plate appearances as opposed to playing him every day. Um, and I think Escobar does change their, their lineup considerably. Um, 
I, I think this is a great pickup. And I think this is, a, it's interesting to see what the Brewers are doing just because, and we talked about this before, when the National League Central was a far more um, uncertain thing. And so, you know, you, you end up in this situation where someone had, someone had to get hot. It was the Brewers. They, they definitely have a, an overwhelming lead. The, you know, playoff odds have them at, at well over 90% to win the division. And so that tra- changes the dynamic of your trade deadline. Where you're now like, I don't need players to help me get to the playoffs. I need players who are going to help me win playoff games, right? Right. Um, and that's you know that's where things change. And, and and this happens far more with pitching, where if you think you're going to get to the playoffs, you don't need that number four starter. Like teams trying to get into the playoffs need starting depth. If you or think you're going to get to the playoffs, you don't need the number four starter because he's not going to start a playoff game, right? Um, so like the Brewers, I think are now racking up for the playoffs, and 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 also know that once they get to the playoffs they can go with a hell of a one, two, three punch in, in terms of pitching that makes their team that much better as well. The pitching is so good. And yes, they could, they could do that. What was the, the, the 87 twins were uh, Viola, Blylevin, and then Les Straker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can get by with that. And in this case, the lineup has been so bad in so many places you know, when when no insult to Avisiel Garcia, but when he's like your your cleanup hitter, it's a it's a problem. And they've been bailed out to some extent because Adamus really got hot once he he went over there. He's been and fantastic, he, yeah. He, and he's showing what everyone thought he could do when he first came up, but hasn't done it yet. And he's he's been around long enough; it's easy to forget he's only twenty five. And the only reason he's not still in in Tampa is because they had all the shortstops in the world coming up behind him, including the the best prospect in in the game but the the thing is that that they've had again like such such disappointments from Keston Hura and i mean this was a guy who former first round draft pick looked like he could overcome a whole lot of swing and miss in his game and then suddenly that caught up with him and they've given yeah. him three different runs at first base this year and it it's really sad. It's almost like he has the yips. Like he just can't. He goes down to AAA and he rakes, but he can't do it in the majors right now. He's such a weird player. You know, he wasn't drafted as a huge power guy. He was drafted as a dude who could really hit. And I felt like, you know, he hit 13 home runs last year in 50 something games, and you know, which is a pace for almost 40 over the over the course of a full year. And I I felt like. And this happens. Like this, 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 he's not the first dude. I feel like the the hitting for power all of a sudden was the absolute worst thing that could have happened to him. Right. So all of a sudden he just tried to hit home runs, um, which is why we've seen what happened this year. But um, Houston Astros made a couple moves that they had to, and uh, best offense in baseball, really good starting pitching. Bullpen's been bad, you know, and, and flat out cost them plenty of games, uh, including a a kind of shocking and highly entertaining nightmare on Monday in, in Seattle. And they addressed it immediately. They got they traded with Seattle. Um, that was a fun one. All of a sudden, you, you people are tweeting <laughs> that Abraham Toros in a Seattle uniform throwing a baseball. Um, they got Kendall Graveman, uh, and then they traded uh, as well for for Yumi Garcia. Um, they also you know took Rafael Monterio, who had been DFA'd, and they're going to add them to the bullpen. They've they've really kind of shored that up. And again, this is another move where the Ashes are going to get to the playoffs. This is to that that bullpen was not going to survive the playoffs. Now they have a much better chance. I agree with that. They needed to get some fresh arms in there. And I've been looking forward to talking about this particular deal with you because the the Mariners deal, because 
I saw you defending it. I made people mad. You did, but I, I don't I, I don't think you were wrong. I think you were right, but I think there's like an aesthetic or emotional quality to yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm not sure how to parse that for myself, whether as a, a fan or, or a commentator, because everything that you said was right. It's a small sample of a pitcher who has not been great in his career. If you look, and, and this is just the simplest thing, but the batting average on balls in play against Gravman is 176. Right. That I mean, it could hold up for the whole year, but that's not how it works. All right. He he has had a lot of balls in play. Just make a beeline for the shortstop, six three put out, and it's over. And I don't know how long that's going to last. And for the Astros' sake, you do hope that it it continues to go on for his sake because it's cool to see. Now, what you said about that 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 you know they they trade uh, two months of this guy who doesn't have a long term profile for Toro who is, you know, doesn't really have a place to play on on the Astros, but has some ability. Not going to be your cleanup hitter of, uh, of the future, but maybe can tide you over at third for a while, especially with Kyle Seager aging out and his contract being up. All that makes sense. The one thing that bugs me is the cosmetic part of it, because I do feel like maybe it's breaking faith with a Seattle fan base right. that has been through 20 years of misery. And, and maybe that's not what should be driving the train, in which case, great, make the deal. But I, I, it just doesn't feel like a good look. Yeah, and I, it, it really is like it's, it's 16 innings of this guy, you know, and, <laughs> and it's, you know, you're trading away 16 innings of, of, of Kendall Graveman. And he is, like you said, like the, the, he's been fantastic this year, um, not as fantastic of late. And all of the underlying data says he's not this good. Like he's good, but he's not amazing. And and, he, and he's pitched amazing. And so you have this situation where um, I think it's really hard to, to not trade 16 innings for four and a half years of, of a guy who might be a pretty good offensive player. And yeah, I think the opposite are, are, are tough. And like if, if, if your reaction to that as a Seattle fan is an emotional one, I think that that reaction is totally valid and your emotions are valid. And I, I understand it's frustrating. Um, you know, I don't think the Mariners are necessarily giving up the year. We already saw them, you know, trade for for another starter and 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 Anderson. And you know, I I they're they're going to do other things. I bet between now and and twenty nine hours from now or whatever. And you know, I I just think this trade kind of made too much sense for them. It's I sixteen think... innings. Like I don't like you can <laughs> like what can you rack up in your those sixteen innings? Like a zero point two WAR if you're really good. You know, it's 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 sixteen innings for a guy who's who's going to, you know, could be an everyday player for you for years. I think it's tough to pass that up if you are the Mariners and your chances of reaching the playoffs, despite the hot streak, which has been super fun. Like I've been a, I've been on the the Mariners train all year. It's not like I hate the Mariners. I said in April this team's actually sneaky good, and no one realizes it, and, and no one did, and they are sneaky good. And but you know, to make that trade, I still think made sense. It does. It does make and it, sense, it, and it made me, you know, a, a, you know, a, some sort of like corporate baseball asshole or something. And that's fine. <laughs> um, no, no, I don't think it does. It, it was makes such a weird thing. It makes you pragmatic, and pragmatic is or pragmatism is what should be calling the shots here. I just and and I mean we're not we're not arguing because you just said you know the the Mariners fans' feelings are valid. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I mean, you if they 
they, they, whoever they are, the the anonymous millions of Mariners fans, do take a big picture view of this. I mean, look, Toro's already hit what three home runs in a in a Mariners uniform, two or <laughs> two or three, right? And right, again, it's already tough for Graveman to to match what he's produced, <laughs> right? Seriously, and I mean, no, he's not going to be home run Baker from now on. I mean, he's well, he might because home run Baker didn't hit any home runs. It was the dead ball era. But he you know hit, what yeah, I'm he talking about? He can hit as much as home run did. Yeah, he, he uh, can hit. He can hit twelve. Yeah, he's a real. I mean, he's a real player. He's a real bat, and 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 I like him and and i i don't know i kind of like i a i like seattle's team i think it's I, I think they're sneaky good i think they could get better and i think they will get better and you know obviously i got yelled at by a lot of seattle people but i kind of like seattle's fan base i think seattle's fan base overall kind of has good vibes uh and i would like to see them made happy they've been um, loyal they've been yeah, very loyal and, and i would like to see them made happy and 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 but i do still think this is a good deal it is um, let's stay in the west for a second um you know, the, the Astros have uh, created some space uh, between them and the rest of the division, but the A's are not uh, sitting and, and twiddling their thumbs. Um, short up the bullpen with Andrew Chafin, uh, one of the better relief targets out there, in my opinion. Um, left-handed gets people out. Uh, I think he's really good. I've, I kind of, you know, every year when I worked for a team, it was... You know, you'd start doing your trade target list, and I would just—I think I had a document that was called Chafin.doc that I just <laughs> opened every year for that. Um, but he's just a perfect relief target for anybody, I think. Um, but they made a much larger deal yesterday, where they traded um, uh, former top pitching among their top pitching prospects, a guy who's really, really scuffled this year, and, and Jesus Luzardo uh, to the Marlins uh, for uh, one of the better position players out there on the rental market at least in, in Starling Marte and, and and this is another kind of lineup transforming piece but it, it's it's an interesting trade where you know it's it's a bit of a challenge trade for the Marlins because the start has been so bad this year and you know it's tough for the A's to deal the guy with this kind of upside but he's been so bad for him but I I, I, I do always and I, and I tweeted this like I, I really respect a team it can do this you can look at that player and you do it all the time where you go you know what it might happen for him but and for but for whatever reason it's not going to happen here uh, and, and to be able to do that and, and turn around and get Marte, I, th- I think it makes sense for both teams. I feel like the A's situation is a little bit analogous to the Brewers, just not as extreme, in that the A's have been pitching-driven. The lineup, except for Matt Olson, has been kind of sketchy. You know, Ramon Laureano has been very good at times, but also very hurt at times. Mm-hmm. Matt Chapman still seems like he's not quite over the hip surgery. And that's been one of the real disappointments of the season for me in that both the the bat and the glove, which sort of felt like I keep dating myself, but, you know, that's my whole <laughs> shtick, right? It, it felt like the, the right handed Greg Nettles, you know, like like a, a, a low batting average, but a lot of power and incredible defense. And neither has really been there this year. And they just need that one more piece. And. Canha has been surprisingly good, particularly because he has he has spiked his game with a whole lot of walks. He too was hurt recently. So if you get Steven Piscotty out of the lineup, it's similar to what we talked about with the Yankees. The whole philosophy being that you take something in the lineup card that's a D or an F and you change it to a passing grade, essentially. And and with Gallo and Marte, it, it might go from a D to or an F to an A. And I feel like, again, as you said, like this is a guy who has all I'm talking about Luzardo in my house, has all this ability, hasn't been able to uncork it where he is and potential that is not actualized is not real. And Marte is real. So right. this this is something that 
that they needed to do. And you know what? If if he turns around with the Marlins and the Marlins, the one thing they've been really good at is is getting pitchers into the major leagues and effective in the major leagues. Then you say, you know what? Good for him. You know, like we it's just <laughs> yeah. something we couldn't do. Absolutely. I, I think you, you still root for players. Um, we talked about the Astros bullpen. The Reds have kind of transformed their bullpen. They did an interesting deal with the Yankees that was very confusing at the time. Where all of a sudden, like it, it was like one in the morning, uh, and the Yankees had a press release saying that they've sent um, Luis Sessa and Justin Wilson to the Reds for a player to be named later. Um, and you're like, what, what, what? Like, I don't understand this one at all. And it, I think they were just, you know, they, they were just, you know, clearing roster space, which they, right. and they did have a bit of a roster crunch, and they and they made that roster crunch that much easier. Um, Obviously, with the Gallo trade, um, I don't think they don't they don't even have a roster crunch anymore. And then the Reds continued yesterday, where they traded for Michael Gibbons from the Rockies, and um, the Reds are are playing well of late. They're kind of in the wild card race, and uh, you know, but only kind of. You know, every time I I, and I do this at least once a week, sometimes more, is um, <laughs> I, I do the math, and 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 you know, I I, I do I, I have the most basic understanding of probability mathematics. But, you know, I, I do I know I have enough of them to do the math on this. And it's consistently been for the last two months, kind of an 85 percent chance that the National League West produces three playoff teams. Right. That so if you're in the East or the Central, it's it's winner go home. And like, I don't I understand the Reds kind of making a push here, but I still don't. I think it's real tough for them because I don't think they're going to win that division. And I don't think they're going to get a wild card. No, but it doesn't seem like they're paying a real price to make the Yeah, they didn't it, give up. It? Yeah, it was two fringy arms and obviously a player to be named later. It didn't cost them much. And, and their bullpen's been dreadful. Like, I, it, it's, they, have, they have five relievers with 20 or more appearances in an ERA above five. Amir Garrett has been more angry than effective this year. That's one <laughs> of the strange things. Like, it seems like every day there's something between him and, and Javi Baez but he's just not as good as as he was, and and the bravado, which was so much fun when he was getting outs, is a little yeah. bit strange now. Because if you're gonna be bad and get angry at being bad, then you're gonna be in for some very long days. And oh, we've breaking news, Stephen. Oh, okay. The Blue Jays have made progress on a deal. Oh, it's a progress. That was done. Blue Jays made progress on a deal to acquire Brad Hand. We're not gonna talk about that. Progress is not a deal. <laughs> progress um, is not. Padres made a big trade early, early in the week, uh, acquiring Adam Frazier, who kind of transforms their lineup. And um, this kind of led to other things like where are they going to put him and stories about them trying to dump Eric Hosmer's contract in order to uh, play Frazier every day and maybe slide Jake Cronworth to first and things like that. Um, obviously, Adam Frazier is having a great year. He's a great fit into that lineup, a uh, great fit in any lineup, and, and, and he's kind of the perfect two-hole hitter. Um but, you know, people, you know, the Padres are supposedly you know, trying to try to get Joey Gallo. They're still in on, on pitching. And, you know, it is only July 29th and there's still more than 24 hours left. And tomorrow is going to be a nightmare for people who write about trades. But um, they still, they, they, they're always kind of the third place team in the West. And they're, they're kind of, it's kind of become, there's a bit of permanence to it at this point. And, and they, they've yet to really go on that hot streak. Well, some things that you might have expected back in March would have worked out haven't. Chris Paddock, 5 ERA, Blake Snell just not the guy that he was. No. And I, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, and, and if, if it's that he's gotten out of kind of the— for, for all the hand-wringing that happened over the way he was handled in the postseason, 
maybe that was the spot for him, sort of the the semi-opener four to five inning guy. He just hasn't been able to do it. And then, you know, the, the trade for Frazier is really interesting to me in a way because, first of all, it kind of implies or admits that Hosmer was an overreach when they gave him the big contract that they did. And in another, it's kind of neat to see that Jake Cronenworth has distorted things for them so much because he really gave them a player that I don't think even they expected. Yeah, it's an unanticipated benefit, right? Right. And now they have to keep him in the lineup. So you you acquire Frazier, who, yes, he can play and has already played some outfield for them, but you've got to keep Cronenworth in the lineup. And then, you know, suddenly your, your big ticket item in Hosmer, he's on the bench. Yeah, and I, I do think the Hosmer deal in some way did serve some purpose beyond uh, what he does in the field, which has not been much this year. Um, <laughs> it, it, but it, it reminds me a bit of the Jason Worth deal, where this is a this is a team saying, sending a message to the industry, and by the industry I mean almost more players and agents of we're not fucking around here. We're a real team. We are a we're a team that's going to behave like a big market team. We're a team that's going to sign big contracts. Like we need to be in your mix. Um, and I think that message was received. And I think it helped in that regard as well. The one guy on that team that that I get a, a this is a, again sort of a silly thing along the Graveman lines, it, very different. <laughs> but but I mean I I get a lot of pleasure out of the season that Mark Melanson is having, just because no one is going to at the end of the day say and Mark Melanson's thirty six now is going to want to put him in the Hall of Fame or anything. But this is a guy who has never gotten any hype. I realize he's been a four time All Star, but. He he's going to finish his career with around 300 saves by the time yeah. all all is said and done. At least the league this year, doesn't he? He has 31 saves, and yeah, yeah, he's he's leading. And I mean, it's it's opportunity based. He may or may not be the the greatest pitcher of all. I mean, he hasn't been in his career, but you know, he was he was with the Astros. He then then suddenly he's with the Pirates because he had a, a bad intermediate in, intervening year with the with the uh, with the Red Sox. See, I'm I'm messing up my math too. I can't. I don't. I don't even understand elevator buttons. Like, where do you find the 15th floor? I don't know where they put it on that board. But you know, he's he's going to have 800 games and 300 saves, and you'll have to say like, yeah, wow, this was one of the better closers that we've ever had. Yeah. And no one ever talked about him. He was. And he's yeah. He's like you said. He's never. I don't think he's ever gotten a Cy Young vote. He's never been seen as like the best clip. He's always been a good. He's been a good closer for a long time. He got and he finished eighth in the with the Pirates of all teams in uh, twenty fifteen, the year that okay. Ari- Arietta won it. That's it, though. That's the right. only. It's an honorable mention. Um, okay, Nationals have traded Brad Hand to the Blue Jays for AAA catcher Riley Adams. Uh, the White Sox just got Cesar Hernandez to fill their second base hole. That, that makes a lot of sense for them. Um, let's talk about what hasn't happened. Uh, you know, and there, there's two big stories on the, what hasn't happened front. Um, one of them is the Chicago Cubs. They, they obviously traded Andrew Chafin and, and, and that was expected, but the, the big names are still there. Um, Craig Kimbrell, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez. I don't think they're going to deal all of them. And I still think they have some sort of weird belief that, that they're going to be able to keep Rizzo and Baez. Um, but I'd be shocked if, if Kimberl and Bryant were still there tomorrow afternoon. Just real fast on the Nationals thing. You know, we have to list, depending on what our publication is, 20 or 30 top prospects for the Nationals, but that doesn't mean that they're 20 or 30 top prospects. Oh, it's and impossible to find, yeah. They they just have a really dry system. And so if, if they want to reboot now, 
given where they are, I think it's defensible and they really need to to get some youth in there given sort of some of the deficiencies on, on the rest of the roster. So it's it's uh, it's a good move for them. The 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 Cubs thing, this is something that's been bugging me. And I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit on my own show, too. But we just saw, well, are seeing what the Nationals are going through at this moment with COVID, right? They had 12 positive cases just as we're speaking last night. 11 are breakthrough cases. They are among vaccinated players, which makes sense. And I feel like it's important for for people to understand, because I sense that people don't get this, that when medical people talked about the 90-something percent efficacy of these vaccines. They were talking about preventing severe illness and death, not preventing transmission. Mm -hmm. So it is not impossible that they could have this many cases if they were just marinating in these these virus particles somewhere that you could have them kind of latch onto you. But this is, in, in a sense, good news that they're all vaccinated because if they weren't, we'd be worried since they are it's it's not likely that we, that we have to light candles for Trey Turner, you know, Knockwood. So I mean that that's a good thing. But Rizzo is is allegedly one of the players who is not vaccinated. To bring this right. back to the thing that the Cubs brought up, and it really seems to me I'm not I'm not just being a jerk about this. I'm not just being a pro vaccine guy, which I I am avidly a pro Go vaccine. Get your shots, guy. people. Seriously, like be community minded, not just for yourself, not just for your family, but for everybody and be smart, because why should you outsource your care to me? You don't know. You and I walk into a Starbucks. You don't know if I'm a pox ridden syphilitic. I mean, that's not going to happen in Starbucks unless we both venture into the bathroom together. Let's not go there. But (laughs) I mean, you know, you have to ask for the key. It's very awkward. But, you know, don't don't trust other people. Trust yourself. Get the shot. And this is the thing, like. If you're a team, the Yankees just went through this too, coming out of the all-star break, you get exposed this way. You could lose half your roster for 10 days. And, and it's happened, a, you know, and we've yeah. seen that with the all-star break is like, it was, there was a real fear for teams. They you know, all these players go home and they all took, you know, uh, they all took flights for the public. They all went out with their families and tons of them ended up testing positive because of it. And, and the, I think there's another factor here in the sense that, um, the overwhelming majority of players got Johnson and Johnson. Um, it was easier to talk them into one shot and it was right. easier to talk them into um, a shot that didn't have the second shot side effects that, that you and I dealt with. Right. Um, not that it was a nightmare. I was just really tired for a day. Um, yeah, I had a bad headache. I mean, it was, yeah, you know. I was just, yeah, I literally, I slept for like 24 or 36 hours. I, <laughs> I felt fine. I just literally couldn't stay awake. And, um, you know, and, and they didn't want to deal with that. But the, and, and Johnson Johnson does have a lower efficacy rate um, in, in preventing these kind of things. And so, um, you know, we've seen it with the, you know, the Nationals had a problem. The Brewers have a problem. The Yankees had a problem. And um, it, it's a part of it. But, like, the, the other thing that and, – and Pedro Mora and I talked about this last week, which is, you know, our team saying, oh, I like our, our team saying, I'll, I'll give you less for Rizzo because he's not vaccinated like and or team saying oh shit we are at 85.3 percent <laughs> right and if we trade for rizzo we'll be at 84.2 percent um and does that hurt his thing um you know bias bias is vaccinated um and has been really great in terms of of kind of doing public service stuff uh, in chicago as far as you know please go get vaccinated um and you know, I think the Cubs fans overrate bias consistently. 
um, because he's so much damn fun, and he is. Right. Um, he's great. He's a really good defender. He's also, you know, leading the world in strikeouts and has a sub 300 on base. And um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try to keep him. Just say, hey, you want to just, just do a QO and try to reestablish your value? Like right now. Like we'll just sign you to a one-year 18 right now. Um, but Chris Bryant, I'm, I'm surprised he hasn't gone anywhere yet. I'm surprised Craig Krimbrell hasn't gone anywhere yet. And I wonder if they're just asking for the world still. And seeing if someone gives it to them, and then they'll, they'll they'll downshift, you know, tomorrow after lunch. This is kind of unfair to do because last year was such a disaster. But if you add up what Baez has done between 2020 and 2021, you get 149 games and 592 plate appearances. So like something that would be a typical full season on mm-hmm. the back of the baseball card. He has in that span hit 30 home runs. So that's nice. However, he has struck out 205 times and walked Mm. 22 times. And so his averages are 228, 269, 434. And we were just talking about Mark Belanger. His defense right now has not been at that level. Not It it was a couple of years ago, a few years ago, not there right now. And so you have, uh, he's not without value. Even now he's still positive. And like you said, in some ways, you, this may be one of the few baseball players you really can sell tickets on. Like he is a fun guy to see, He's a fun, fun, fun guy yeah. to root for. I, I mean, I would, I would love to. Any team would love to ha- to have him from sort of a rah rah perspective. But yeah, what do you, what do you, how do you value that in terms of of giving, you know, trading players for him? I'm not sure that you give away a top prospect on that basis. And the, the same is true for these guys who who are rentals, and, and you do have the, the concerns that, that we've talked about. And even Chris Bryant, as good as he has been this year, he gets hurt so much, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're, you're going to have a rental, and then maybe he misses 20 games, too. And I, I don't I hope I'm not slandering him in, in a way because I, <laughs> I, I, I don't mean that it's his fault. I don't I'm not pointing talking about it as as a character thing, but, you know, he he doesn't play full seasons. And so, right. you know, we'll you know, we'll we'll see. But I mean, he he's the one who really excites me just because he's so versatile and you could plug him in at, you know, three, four different spots and he'll keep you above the replacement level there. So he would he would be valuable to to a team and to uh, we've seen his name connected to the Giants and the the Giants have have really been sort of a magic act this year in terms of all the injuries that they've had, but also and they've done this for years now, all guys that you wouldn't expect to be really carrying a team to the best record in baseball and somehow they get there and they play above their heads and they could use a guy that they don't need to depend on to be magical. They don't I mean Lamont Wade Jr is slugging 560 for them. They need a guy who you can <laughs> expect to slug 560. Right. Not by accident. And um the Cubs just announced their lineup for the day game today. Neither Rizzo nor Bryant is in it at the same Uh-oh. time. This is, this is a day game after a night game, and Rizzo, ha- not Rizzo, but Bryant has been a little banged up of late, so it's uh, you don't want to read too much into that. Um, it's like the Aaron Judge thing last night, where his, yeah. uh, his doctor's appointment for COVID, by the way, went long, and they're, oh, did they trade Aaron Judge? No, they did not trade Aaron Judge. Relax. Right. And, and, and then, you know, Aaron, someone asked Aaron Judge in the press, like, have you been vaccinated? He said, I don't want to get into that. Oh, Aaron. Would, and, oh, like, that's like, 
I have been vaccinated. Stephen, have you been vaccinated? I have absolutely been vaccinated. Right. That's the answer. Right. And if, <laughs> and, and if the answer, but if the answer is no, say it. If the answer is no, like, I think that's such a weak sauce answer. If you're embarrassed to give the answer, maybe you should get the shot. But I don't want to do that more. Um, <laughs> so with, again, with the day to go, like the big story, I, Ken Rosenthal was on the show last week. Uh, we talked mostly about how to, how trade deadline, the mechanics of covering a trade deadline, but we also talked briefly. I just wanted to ask him, Hey, do you think Max Scherzer is going to move? And he said 10% chance. And I nodded my head. I'm like, that feels right. Um, it feels like that number has grown significantly where I'd probably say it's more than 50, 50. There are indications he's willing. You know, Max Scherzer has, has 10, five rights and good for him deserves them. Um, and, and he has the right to kind of go where he wants in a lot of ways. Um, and he's the right to turn down a trade and say, I won't go there. And he has the right to say, I will take that trade. Um, but it feels like, and maybe we've gotten even more indication in the last, whatever, 10 minutes with the Nationals sending Brad Hand to Toronto, um, the Nationals are open for business. Um, it feels like Max Scherzer is going somewhere. And if, and if so, that becomes the biggest acquisition of the deadline. It really does. And he would make a fascinating acquisition, particular for anybody. This is a Basically, game one day. Whoever you get, like this is all, nearly anybody, this becomes their game one playoff starter. Exactly. And the, he has already, or we have at least seen indications that that no trade clause means he would prefer to go west. He yes. does not want to pitch for the Mets or the Yankees. That is, again, his right. Go where you're comfortable. He has earned that, and he has every right to exercise it and do whatever he wants to do with it. He could say, I only want to pitch for Colorado if he wants. He has every right to do it. <laughs> we might stage an intervention at that point, but he has he has a right. And this is like if you look at the Dodgers, right? The Dodgers started out defending world champs or whatever you want to call it based on last year with an asterisk maybe, but still like a very good team finally got to the pinnacle after years and years of trying started the year with on paper, all the pitching depth in the world. Now they kind of have to patch it together. I mean, when you, when you start the season where you're like, yeah, David price, we can maybe fit him in somewhere. Like we, we might stick him in the back of the bullpen. And now, now he too is finally in the rotation. We're not going to talk about Trevor Bauer, but he may be gone for all eternity, and that's a good thing, probably. Clayton Kershaw, forearm strain, always scary to see. And and if they were to make that kind of deal, then that suddenly would put them in a place that right now, or, or take them out of a place, I should say, that right now looks very, very shaky. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked earlier about playoff odds, and playoff odds are, are really cool and something I use every day. Uh, and teams use them every day. Teams also use... And, and and calculate their own World Series odds. So it's not about like getting to the play. It's about getting the ring and, and getting the championship and, and what that means. And um, there is a, a ugly core business of this where a World Series is worth tens of millions of dollars to a franchise. Right. But nobody's World Series odds goes up more than the team that acquires Max Scherzer. That's absolutely right. And and I mean, we talked before, I talked about Viola Blylevin and Soup Du Jour. That would, that's where the Dodgers are right now. Maybe they're not even at Viola Blylevin, Soup Du Jour, depending on what happens with Kershaw going forward. Not that Kershaw's been the world's greatest postseason pitcher either. It's kind of the one shaky spot on his, his resume. But right now it's Walker Bueller, who is great, and Urias, who is often very good. And then who the hell knows? And so... That would be, uh, and I mean, that's not the only place he could go. He could go to any of the teams we've talked about. But that, as you said, would really put them in a, a position to repeat. And I'm sure that that's something that 
they want to do. Can we talk for a second, by the way, I, I'm just curious if, if you have seen anything, if it's just the injuries, but talking about the, the most disappointing seasons this year, and he's extra on my mind because he had sort of the defensive misplay of the night two nights ago, but Cody Bellinger mm. just lost right now, totally lost. Yeah, hit a bomb last night, but before that, I think what was had three straight strikeouts. Um, I just always remember 2017, and if if you can, uh, Stephen and dear listeners, kind of separate all of the, the the soap opera around 2017, and just think about actual baseball in 2017. Um, the Astros advanced people felt really good about getting him out, and he had a horrible World Series. Um, and I think teams have figured out how to get him out. Um, and, and he does have huge holes in what he does. He's tremendously talented, but there's, there's a massive hole, uh, in what he does. And that it's just been exploited to no end. Um, and he's made no adjustment. In fact, it's kind of gotten bigger and worse. And that's why we are where we are with him. How would you describe Cody Bellinger's hole? Uh, fastballs. Okay. Yeah. He's trouble. He has trouble with velo. He's trouble with velo, uh, outer edge velo. And, and it just, he just can't get to it. Period. Is it? 17 strikeouts in 28 at-bats in that World Series. Mm-hmm. Did hit one out, so someone made yeah. a mistake somewhere. But Yeah, you can get one. Yeah, he's Obviously, if you make a mistake to Cody Bellinger, it's going to go a very, very long way. So is that the kind of thing that a player can adjust to? Sure, many do. You know, I, you know, Mike Trout came up and had holes, and he still actually has a hole. It's just tiny. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and guys can adjust to it, or guys know how to work around them, you know, and... and you know, Joey Gallo has holes and Joey Gallo strikes out a lot. Um, Joey Gallo also kind of is, is a really smart player. I, I really love watching him. But, um, you know, he knows what his holes are. And even if his holes are in the strike zone, he has such good pitch recognition. He like he the ball comes out of pitcher's hand. He goes, that's a pitch. That's a strike. And it's in my hole. I'm just taking it. I'll live with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really smart way to go. But I mean, absolutely, players adjust to and, and feel it's just like Bellinger for whatever reason has not been able to adjust to it, and, and and he's kind of adjusted backwards to it. Well, yeah, backwards is actually the key, and and this has been me giggling like a thirteen year old boy because we we keep talking about holes. But he <laughs> he twenty seventeen rookie year strikes out one hundred forty six times in a full season. Next year one hundred and fifty one times in one hundred and sixty two games. But then in the MVP year. 156 games, 661 plate appearances, only whiffs 108 times, which in today's game is like being contact hitter. Yeah, pretty good, yeah. So he did it in the past, and then it went away. And the question is, you know, can he find it again? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of baseball. See, we're at an hour. We'll take a break. All right. Um, we'll come back with independent filmmaker Lucas McNally. You know, it's, it's, it's obviously we usually get baseball writers and beat guys a lot and beat girls a lot to to be our guests. Um, finding a window for anyone like that during the trade deadline is just an impossibility. So we're our, our listener of the week, Lucas McNally, an independent filmmaker from the beautiful state of Maine who is currently fundraising for Maine Noir, which we will get into. And then we'll come back, uh, talk about our musical guest, read your email, all sorts of stuff like that. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. It's listener of the week time. Like I said, it's trade deadline time and don't want to bother any writers. They're busy enough today. So our listener of the week is week is a writer and filmmaker and crowdfunding expert. Best known for the indie film travel project A Year Without Rent. He has written for Filmmaker Magazine, Film Threat, Film Courage, and the Huffington Post. His short film Gravita has over 220 million views on YouTube. And when not making films, he helps his wife make soap. And maybe we'll get into that as well. And joining us from, let's just call it the film capital of the world, Walterboro, Maine. <laughs> it's Lucas McNally. Lucas, how are you? Great. Great. How are you? We're good. How, how is Maine these days? Maine is, it's summer in Maine. And you can't really, nothing can be that wrong in the summer in Maine. It's 75 degrees. It's sunny. And there's a nice ocean breeze. And we're having you on because you're in, you're in the midst of, you just began. Uh, a, a fundraising campaign for your next film, which is called Maine Noir. Uh, go to mainnoir.com if you want to learn more about this. We'll say that a lot during this, this interview, Maine Noir. Awesome. But tell, tell us about Maine Noir. So Maine Noir is, as you may have guessed, a noir film. Um, it's about a woman who inherits a house in Midcoast, Maine. And it's this fresh start for her, you know, and it's kind of like the beginning of the Diane Lane movie where she like, you know, has to go and start her second life and whatever. Uh, and she meets locals and she starts to fall for a guy. And then one night, somebody breaks into her house. And in the process of that, she discovers that there's $3 million hidden in the walls of her house. And then it sort of gets bad from there. It all goes downhill from it there. It all sort of goes downhill from there, yeah. And and um, you said this takes place in the, in the, in the mid-coast of Maine. Uh, that is where you, you, you live. And um, is there something about that area that made you feel this was ripe for a setting for such a film? Yeah. So Midcoast, Maine, you've probably seen it on TV. It's very picturesque and touristy and everything. And Waldboro is this town that's right in the middle of that. And it's probably best described as a clam digger town. Um, it's right on the Madomic River. And it's a town people sort of drive through on their way to Camden or Rockland or, or Bar <laughs> Harbor. Um, but if you get off the beaten path, it's like this really beautiful place. And it's kind of got a seedy underbelly, but it's also a little bit proud of it. it they, there's definitely a chip on the shoulder if you're from Walderboro. Wait, 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 what's the seedy underbelly? The seedy underbelly is uh, clam diggers, really, and fishermen. You know, and these are guys, clam digging is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Like you're, you're up to your shins in mud and you're bent over and you're really literally pulling these clams out of the mud that are like maybe six inches, nine inches, whatever it is deep all day long in the sun. And so these are like tough fucking dudes and, um, you know, you don't really mess with them. You know, they and they sort of um, there's also a big Elver, a big Elver thing here where it's like a Japanese delicacy, this eel. And they'll go up the coast. And um, I don't know how much you know about fishermen, but they're very territorial. But the Waldemar guys will just go up the coast with them. And it's like, fuck you. Get out of our way. Is there crime there? There's some crime. There's always there's not really any crime, but there's always, you know, mostly because nobody people know better. Than to mess with anybody. But when the Elvers prices spiked, must have been 10, 15 years ago, there were dudes walking around with like a half million dollars in cash, like in a duffel bag at three in the morning, buying Elvers. <laughs> it was <laughs> nuts. <laughs> it feels but, like you, you found a new setting because when you yeah. think of classic noir, 
it's always in the back alleys, right? It's it's right. always guys getting getting beaten up behind the building. It's not on on a bucolic shoreline. So are are you you going to get a lot of mileage out of that sort of juxtaposing dark doings against the, this place? You might want to set up a beach umbrella. Yeah, it's sort of um, the idea is to sort of have the two tracks where you have like this beautiful coastline and like this like wonderful architecture and this historic town and there's there's a world famous diner and then you've got these people who have to at some point dispose of a dead body so and it's a real yeah it's a real contrast i i, I want to talk about this this fundraising aspect and again go to my noir.com and you can click on make a pledge support independent art you should do that if you're listening to this podcast you should help support lucas and you and you can end up maybe seeing the film before it comes out and you get to see this film. You get to be a part of this and see the film. So please give to Lucas. But um, your, your current fundraising goal is $45,000. Right. Um, you know, when we think about independent films. That's not and, enough and, money. And we see independent <laughs> films. Like even an independent <laughs> film, you're talking about a seven-figure budget. It's just not right. It's not the $400 million of some piece of shit garbage comic book movie. It's But it's, it's still a seven-figure <laughs> number, right? Yeah, usually. Um, so what does 45 grand get you? It doesn't get you a lot. But so the beauty of shooting in a place like Maine is if you shoot in L.A. and you want to shoot in a diner, you know, the diner's got a rate card, basically. Um, mm. This is how much it's going to cost you to shoot in this diner. Blah, 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 blah. You're going to have to do all this. If you go to a diner in Maine and you go, can we shoot in your diner? They go, oh, yeah, absolutely. What do you need? Do we- <laughs> Can we feed the crew? Right. And you're like, you're like, yeah. I mean, if you want to feed the crew, that'd be that'd be great. A friend of mine shot a short film here, and they tried to rent a lobster boat because like most of it takes place on a lobster boat, and they wouldn't take any money. They insisted on feeding the cast, cast and crew lobster. They wouldn't take any money for the second boat that they brought as a support boat. It was you know because people are just so thrilled that something like that is happening in the area that they're just bending over backwards to help because it's cool. I mean, the last time anyone shot anything here was when Mel Gibson made a man without a face. Like you, you don't get a Stephen King movie a year. We don't get a Stephen King movie a year. They might come to like, I think some, some location shots. Yeah. There might be some location <laughs> shots or they might be like inland somewhere or in Bangor and Portland, places like that, but not really around here. And a lot of them will go to Canada. So what is the total budget for this movie? So the total budget is I think we can get it in the can for 45 and then we're going to try to raise some money locally for post-production. And so but 45 will get you, you know, there's I think there's 15 or 16 speaking roles in the film and 11 of them are locals playing themselves. So they'll all either do it for free or we have to feed them or give them like 100 bucks or whatever. And then we bring in like four actors at the ultra low budget minimum of like 200 a day. And then you get a crew of like seven, eight people who are people like me who have done 15 different jobs on a film set and can sort of be Swiss army knives. And I mean, do you have to bring those people in? Are there enough people in Maine for that kind of for well, the crew or do you have to? We'll have to bring I... some of them in. Our, our DP is coming in from Mexico City. Um, our main producer is coming in from Vancouver. Uh, so it's a lot of, there's some crew members who are people that I know from, um, a year without rent. Mm -hmm. And some of them are just people who, who owe me a favor. And so they're going to come do it. 
Um, and then some people are, we'll get, we'll bring in some people probably from Boston and we'll have days where we don't need a crew and we can shoot it with like three people and then we'll bring in some extra people and we'll make it work. So I, I, I did want to ask you one question, which is, you know, when I was reading about this project again at mainnoir.com, go there and pledge and help get this film be made for um, any amount you want. Yeah. For any amount <laughs> you want. And, 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 and we should, you know, look, I mean, if, if, uh, give us a little $10, you're going to see the film before anybody sees the film. Um, so you, you did mention that thanks to the pandemic, uh, you do need to follow SAG's COVID protocols and, and right. SAG is, SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. Um, but there are COVID protocols. Can you talk a little bit about what those protocols are? Cause you mentioned that like, we got to follow these and it's, it does add money right. to, to the, to, you know, trying to make this movie, trying to follow these protocols. Um, what are these protocols? So basically, um, I have them written down somewhere, but not in front of me. But basically, you have to get everybody a PCR test and at the beginning. And I think once a week, everybody has to be PCR tested. And then there's the rapid tests, like every three days. Mm -hmm. And everybody has to have PPE. And you have to have somebody like a COVID czar on set every day is the general. That's generally what it is. You have to hire someone who's just your COVID dude? or, or Yeah, do pretty that? much. Pretty much, yeah. Or I think you can get somebody who you might be able to get a volunteer if you can. I mean, I don't think the training's that hard. What does this person do? If the, <laughs> I think if they the, just what walk is the film's COVID? They just kind of enforce the PPEs. Yeah, I think they sort of walk around and go put your put your mask on. <laughs> That's a good we job. Had, so we had. Um, I also organized road races, and we have here the Walderboro Half Marathon, which was the is the hardest half marathon in New England. Um, and it is the only half marathon that happened in New England, I think, last year because we made it work anyway. And we had a person who was the COVID czar and her job was to yell at people. And she was allowed to disqualify anybody in the race at any time for any reason. But, and this, we, but, but we had no issues because every, everybody knew that. And so it worked out well. But you couldn't have brought in someone to shoot your film last year, right? Like this couldn't have happened Probably not, that no. way last year. No, I don't think so. And no, because there... Maine was a bigger shutdown state, and so we couldn't even get people. It was hard to get people from Massachusetts across the border last year. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, it's just a weird question because, like, things are going in the wrong direction. But, like, yeah. six weeks ago, when it felt like things were good, mm -hmm. um, did you feel there was a chance that by the time you actually began production, you would no longer need a COVID czar? Yes. So that was kind of the hope. And when I was talking, when I had a first conversation with SAG, they were like, yeah, they're going to reevaluate this pretty soon. And then I don't, I don't think that's happening now. Right. <laughs> things have gone to shit again. And I mean, there's one element of this where in looking just at casting of it, you know, we're like sort of looking at it in different levels. And we're like, okay, so we have this, this person looks interesting. They're in LA. But if things go to shit, maybe we need to have a list of people who are in New England. Who can just drive. Yeah, who can just drive and just get here? Um, I want to talk about casting. Like you said, you know, this mm -hmm. is this is a, a independent film and a low budget independent film at that. You right. know, it, it, with a total budget of, of you know under fifty thousand dollars, which you can help by going to Main Noir and hitting pledge. Um, You're good at this. So, <laughs> like, can you talk about the casting process? You know, obviously John C. Riley is probably not available. I don't think he's available. No. You know, and and can you talk about like casting this and, um. You know, how how you how you find who you want, and and I guess you just know it when you see it, which right. is how someone once explained it to me. Um, but there's still plenty of you know very talented people out there 
who you know are available to you, right? Yeah, there's a lot of talent. Um, so one thing we have done is we have contacted some people who I shouldn't mention their names, but you know their names, and some of them had have said uh, no, but good luck. <laughs> Some of them have, have just not replied, and some of them we're waiting to hear from. Um, but we, so we put out a casting call on uh, backstage, and we got hundreds of people, and it's a lot of looking through it, and just the to talk about the you know when you see it, you know you sort of look through it and you look at pictures and you go no 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 maybe no 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 maybe, you know just because they just don't have the right look for the role. So one of the main characters has to be a local, and so it's Maine. And so he has to be a white dude who looks like he's from Maine. So what does a, what does a, what does a person from Maine look like? He sort of looks like Patrick Dempsey, but like (laughs) less good looking, (laughs) you know, I mean, he can't look like he's, it sounds terrible, but he can't look ethnically ambiguous because the state's 99.9% white. Right. And there's just no point in casting like, you know, Omar Epps as, as your local, because then people are going to spend half the movie going, really? He's, this is a local. All right. He, he got off the interstate wrong exit and he liked it <laughs> he and he stayed. <laughs> I mean, if you can get him, I mean, yeah, I know, mean, make sure. some, make some adjustments because yeah, we you ha- sort of have to rewrite it a little bit, but yeah, but, but we have seen sort of a, a trend in movies, right. Being like, you know, we're not going to be, be bound by that. We're going, right. you know, we, we can't. And I, and I realize you're going for sort of a, an authentic look, but you know, if, if you, the best actor for the part, right. It's sort of yeah. like, it's sort of like baseball. You, you draft for talent, not for your, the needs of your position. Yeah. You're sort of going for someone who looks the part, but you know, if, um, and names are escaping me right now. If so-and-so who has, has an Oscar says, I really want to be in this. You go, well, all right, well, we rewrite the movie then. Denzel, Denzel Washington. In that situation. Yeah, if Denzel Den- wants to be in it, then we go, all right, yeah, sure, we'll figure out a way to to have a, re- like a, a real quick scene in the beginning where you explain why Denzel's in this movie. But then for the woman and her daughter, we're casting, it could be anybody because they're just not from Maine. Right. So they, could, they could be anyone. So, I mean, you said you, 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 you got in touch with some people whose name I would know. Right. Um, and, and you know, Lucas and I, you, you, we know each other, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. big film, I'm a big film fan and like a lot of indie films. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is there really a realistic chance of getting a name I know in a film with a $45,000 budget? There is, and there isn't, it's sort of one of those things you got to sort of shoot the arrow through the keyhole, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you know someone who knows them and you can make a personal connection to them and you don't have to go through their agent and they have an opening in their schedule and they like the part and they can afford to do it. And I think I pitched it to someone. I was like, you know what you could do is you could just bring the family up and it could be a summer vacation. And then you could just take a couple of days and go, come over here and shoot some scenes and then you'll be done. And then everybody else will be at the beach. And so, so what, and how has Parker Posey responded to this? She, <laughs> she was interested you know, but then she's like, well, I have to do the new Lost in Space. So I was like, well, that's too bad because my wife was very excited because she's such a big fan. You know, it's you can get it's I always assume, assume you can't get people. And then people always say, well, it's worth it's worth trying. And 
it's like uh, I was listening to your last episode and talking about uh, the first baseman who can't hit, and you're like, he just needs you just need one person to say yes to giving him an offer. Mm-hmm. So it's you can get some people. I don't think we're going to get George Clooney um, by but any you, means. But you do kind of do you, do you do you start the casting process, if you will, by kind of um, like really shooting for the moon here and saying yeah. let's try to do this first, and then we'll then we'll downshift to. Um, not that they're any worse actors, but, but just right. to more relative unknowns. Yeah. I mean, you do both at the same time. You sort of shoot the moon and you sort of, you know, because those, those people can get you in, they'll get you into festivals and they'll get you, you know, more right. financing and they'll sell the movie to Netflix on the back end. So, I mean, even if, you know, they, there's people with a lot of talent who don't get, who haven't been cast yet. And so then it's just a question of do we you want a name actor and if you can't get a name actor do you want to try to discover somebody, um, but ultimately you're looking for just the best actor for the role. Is one cheat for that that you could write like a, a three page scene where your main character you know has a problem like l- let's consult Mr. Smith next door the old guy next door he's always very smart and that's Orson Welles and you've yeah. written a three page speech for Orson Welles and Orson gets his payday plus uh, a free trip to Maine. And in that way, you kind of get him into a movie. I realize Orson's been dead for 30 years, but or right. you, you know, you know where I'm going. <laughs> Who, whoever yeah. the, but I mean, he did a lot of those kind of cameo yeah. slash guest spots in movies because he was trying to finance his own films. This would be a little different in, in that I, I assume they're not going to finance a film off of this, but still like you come in for one day. All we're asking for is like five hours of your time. Yeah, I mean, that's totally a thing that works. And, you know, we have a character who has, it's a one day shoot. And so we're trying that a little bit. I'm available, Lucas. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Can you play a 60 year old woman convincingly? I mean, I'm a 52 year old man. I think with a little makeup, I'd be Uh, happy to be. All right. We'll put a wig on you. I think we we can do this. It'll be like a kids in the the hall sketch. You know, and the, the thing I always think of with actors is actors ultimately want to act and they want to act in a they want to do something they haven't done before and they want to do something that like they can sink their teeth into. So if you can give an actor a good role and get it in front of them, then you've got a shot of them saying yes. If everything else sort of works out for them, especially if they have a summer home in Maine, which that's the thing. Yeah. Um, so I mean, right now you're, you're trying the, the, this fundraiser runs, uh, for the throughout most of August, um, right. you're trying to raise forty five thousand dollars. Our listeners can go to mainnoir.com and hit the pledge button and help get this film made and see it before everyone comes out. And that would be really cool if you did that. And if you're listening to this show, but I, let's 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 make the let's be positive. Let's make the okay. assumption that you get your forty five thousand. Okay, sure. And and we'll be positive and realistic. So by at the end of August, you you have raised forty five thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. You know, I, I've I've talked about this in the past. I've I have more friends in the music world than the film world. Right. Um, if you are a musician, even in the pandemic, um, and you want to make an album, you just start recording, um, mm. and you can even do that. Some people can do that in their homes, even. Um, you know, if you are a writer and you want to write a book, you just start writing. Um, film is such a different thing. Um, you need so many human beings to make a movie. Yeah. Um, and so much planning and so much preparation. It's, 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 it's exponential compared to other arts. If, if, it, if, if at the end of August you have your 45,000, like what is the, realistically, what would be the expected first day of filming? 
Um, we would try, we have to get it done before the leaves change. So we're sort of doing pre-production while we do the crowdfunding campaign. Um, and so we would probably start in like September like 8th or something like that, I think. And how long would it take? Probably like two weeks. Probably like a two-week, like a 14, 15-day shoot, something like that. And that sounds so insane when you think about like, fast, like, yeah. like, like, you know, again, this is, this is an independent film. But even independent films, like you think about four to six-week things if they're fast. Right. Well, my last film, um, we shot in seven days in northern Maine for $4,000. And so the way that one worked is nobody got paid at all. And the $4,000 paid for food and plane tickets. And we shot in a rustic county in a town that doesn't have a name and in the middle of the woods. And so we just went from sunup to sundown for seven days. If a town doesn't have a name, how do you know the town exists? It is an unorganized (laughs) township. Ah, unincorporated something Unincorporated, yeah something yeah. like that yeah it's like a tr94 or something like that and did you just when you were making that one even a smaller budget like you said four grand mm-hmm. um is it is it pure guerrilla filmmaking like you just set up and shoot and, yeah. and ask questions later yeah pretty much there was we discovered halfway through that that there was it was bear hunting season um <laughs> and that there were like wait there's a bear hunting season i've never hunting. been to maine i will let's admit, i've never been, there's an actual like legitimate bear yeah, hunting oh, yeah. season i had forgotten about it because it's only up there and i knew it wasn't deer hunting season yet which was the one you know you're most worried about because you don't want to get shot because you have like you know some sort of white thing on um yeah so there were people they were baiting for bear and we were in the middle of where they had baited for bear and they were not real happy about that but there, it was literally, you would shoot in one direction, and then we would turn around and shoot against a different set of trees, and it would be a whole different location. <laughs> and so, I, this, this this entire film's going to be done in, in Waldeboro, your town. Yes. Yeah. Um, I know it's hard to answer this question, but what would your anticipated running time be? Um, I wrote it to be pretty short. So I wrote it to be like 85 minutes, something in there, sort of because it's, it's a throwback to those older 40s and 50s films. Yeah, sure. You know, there's like really lean, economical, like not a lot of fluff, you know, no little side quest over here, that sort of thing. So it's written to just go sort of in a straight line for 80 minutes. And how how much how many minutes of film will be shot to make an 80 to 85 minute film that's a good question um i don't know nobody ever keeps track we don't like nobody keeps track of like the feet of film anymore because it's all digital right so i mean probably the first cut will end up being like two hours yeah like when the director's cut comes out on on the special (laughs) blu-ray edition right the special blu-ray edition yeah there'll be like a like a four hour edit on that, which is uh, two and a half hours of just scenery. Will there be director's commentary? There could be a director's commentary. <laughs> I could get very drunk and do a director's commentary. <laughs> and my main uh, accent will come out. It'll be glorious. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, this is, this is like we said, it's a noir film. It's called Main Noir. And you go mm-hmm. to mainnoir.com and you pledge to help get this film made done. Um like, what are some of the the, the noirs that, that you kind of have fell in love with as a filmmaker? So the big one is uh, probably Detour, which they made for, I think, about the same budget uh, back in the 
1945, and it's one of those movies that, you know, people would tell me to watch it, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, they're like, it's, it's a $45,000 B movie, I'm like, I'm like, okay, <laughs> and you watch it, and it's amazing, it's like, just so good, so that's a big one. Um, Is that the, the one that Oliver Stone remade with Sean Penn back in the, uh, maybe 15, 20 years have. ago? He might have. That sounds familiar. Um, yeah, there's a great one. So I've been watching a lot of them, and they're sort of all blending together now. Sure. Which is, kind, which is kind of what you want, I think, when you're prepping for a film. Like, you don't... Like, there's two methods. There's the watch the treasure of the Sierra Madre every night yes. during production, like P.T. Anderson did. And then there's the watch so many that you're starting to forget which is which. And then, which I kind of prefer, because then you sort of get to the bones of it and to the like the vibe of the genre as a whole but there's one it's in the public domain it's called the great st louis bank robbery and steve mcqueen's in it and there's this it's on prime and there's this great scene where they're gonna rob a bank and the the woman in it doesn't want him to rob the bank and so she writes in lipstick on the bank door a warning that the bank is about to be robbed and the amazing thing is they don't show this because apparently they didn't have the budget. They just tell you that. <laughs> and I'm like watching like, how do you not have a shot of this? <laughs> like, give me a shot of the bank door with the lipstick on it. Holy shit. <laughs> Steven, you're a fan of things that are old. What did you have a, a, a film noir favorite? Oh, there are a bunch. And uh, you have to be a certain kind of person, right, to want to get into these because they yeah. they are they are dark and they don't have a lot of catharsis but specifically the one that I, w I was talking about when i when i referred to guys getting beat up in back alleys was the setup the uh film with robert ryan robert ryan like not well remembered today but a really mm -hmm. tremendous actor played good guys and bad guys but did play a, a lot of heavies and in that one he's a, a washed up boxer who is supposed to take the fall in a fight doesn't and then, and and this is referenced heavily in Pulp Fiction in the Bruce Willis character, but pays yeah. a very, very heavy price for doing what he does. And and one of the ways, spoilers, is that the bad guys prevent him from boxing in the future by uh, taking away his tools, let us say. <laughs> I, I think my favorite is a, a French film that is, is also kind of part of the French New Wave, but definitely a noir film, which is Elevator to the Gallows. Uh, which is late fifties Louis Mal, and it's um, the story of uh, a man and a woman, and and uh, who are having an affair, and and he agrees to kill the woman's husband, a a rich businessman, and God damn it, does everything go wrong from there? Um, <laughs> and and also has a, a pretty amazing soundtrack where they they somehow got Miles Davis to do the soundtrack, and he just improvised the whole thing. Um, it's, it's a great, I think it's on criterion still, um, elevator to the gallows. I, I just love it. Um, so let's, 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 let's wrap this up. And, and again, okay. let's make sure everybody understands <laughs> you go to mainnoir.com If you are not familiar, it's N O I R mainnoir.com It's right there. You can see a little video about what's happening. You can read about what Lucas is doing. And more importantly, you can help pledge money to get this film made. It's, 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 you know, we talk about, we play a lot of music on the podcast and talk about supporting independent artists. This is a good opportunity to support independent film. It's also really fun to do. And if mm -hmm. you do so, you're going to get to see the film before anybody else. 
Now, if you're really crazy and you want to, you want to, you know, give them a thousand dollars, you get a producer credit. Yeah. Which, nice. you know, if, if you give us $10,000, <laughs> your, your face can be the face on the money in the movie. Wow. So you could be the dead president in the movie. So here's the thing. Uh, you know, I, I have and, heard from people and I know that there are, um, I know for a fact that there are some millionaires who listen to this show. Sure. $10,000. Probably, probably baseball players. Your face on money for $10,000 is a bargain. But uh, right. if, if you're not sitting around with ten grand in the bank, um, again, for just $10, you will see the film before anyone sees the film. Um, a little bit more and you'll get a download of it and get a DVD and all sorts of things. All the, all the, all the different levels are, are, put, are, are detailed at mainnoir.com. Go there, support independent filmmaking. And Lucas, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I forgot to mention, and I was like, so early, an early draft of the script, just to get to your core audience, there was like a <laughs> two-page rant about Mookie Betts and the Mookie Betts trade. <laughs> Did it get cut? It got cut because it didn't really work oh. um, within the larger context of the film. But it was it was there for a couple of drafts because so is, we are not was, over that. Was the three all. was the three million dollars hidden inside the house part of Mookie Betts' bonus? It was it was the the reason why the Red Sox couldn't afford him. Yeah. Can Can I just suggest, by the way, it, this is a, a an error on my part, but I was watching your pitch video on the fundraising page, and you have a shot. You you talk about the town. You cut to a shot of a cat in a window, and oh, yes. simultaneously you say, "What I heard was a town with a history of hiding cats where no one can find them." <laughs> And I thought, well, the cat's right there. That's it's the cat is obviously right there in the window. But no, it's hiding cash. cash. However, if this doesn't work out, hiding cats where no one can find them, I think, has a lot of potential. Yeah. So that that cat has a, has a backstory. Um, <laughs> she lives in the in the middle of the village, like right next to our soap shop, and her name is Flower. And they found her living with a skunk. <laughs> And then they took her because they took her in and cleaned her up, and she smelled like a skunk for like a month. But yeah, they found her living with a skunk under someone's porch, and now she lives in this uh, shop on the in the village. <laughs> so go to maidenwar.com, support <laughs> Lucas's film. Um, his second film, Cat and Skunk in Maine, will be available on <laughs> Disney Plus <laughs> next year. It's an animated series, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And Lucas, good it's luck with it. It's a Pepe Le Pew reboot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everything works out. I hope you get your money, and I hope you make this film. Thank you so much. We're we're so glad that you're back on Twitter. Oh, <laughs> you're in the minority, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs>
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks again to Lucas McNally for joining us to talk about the fun world of independent filmmaking. And for the 18th time, go to mainnoir.com and help Lucas out. Uh, our musical guest this week, Stephen, getting a musical guest on a weekly basis is not easy. No, I um, imagine not. And uh, we had a screw up today where I, I thought it was all lined up. And then I realized I never got the actual music from this musician. Um Got, and that it turns out that the main guy I was talking to is also a first responder and therefore could not respond to a late email, so I didn't get any music from them. So here's what we're doing this week. Um, Izzy True was a recent musical guest. I'm just going to play more Izzy True just because people really responded to Izzy True. Oh, that's um, cool. And seemed to really like Izzy True. Izzy True is uh, a Chicago, not from Chicago, but now based out of Chicago. They're on Don Giovanni Records, who has become the official record company of the... Uh, of the podcast and thanks to them for providing it and and it's just more is he true and enjoy it and we'll play some some as they used to say during the 70s aor days deep cuts from the new <laughs> is he true record um are you ready for so you we're not Steven? we're not going to talk about the beatles your favorite band we're not and i'm not going to play them <laughs> he's not going to do it i i'm not the first person with this uh with this theory and I, i've always supported it greatly um you know, and obviously we saw, if you watch the Olympic open cer- opening ceremonies, you saw them play Imagine, which they tend to do. Right. Um, if John Lennon was still alive, he would be like a total MAGA guy, wouldn't he? It's hard to say, obviously. Let's just say he- yes. <laughs> I, I will say that I think he would have been bemused by a song about the negation of nationhood being played over a parade of nations. And I, I mean, the, the, sentiment, <laughs> the sentiment about world peace, yes, well taken, but he that's not necessarily what the song was about. The song was about what steps you have to take to get to world peace, and letting go of nationalism was one of them in his formulation. I am neither endorsing it nor refuting it. I am just observing. And it seems to me that one of the things that happens is, and and it's hard to say that John Lennon was like a, a radical punk pop act at that time, although he did try to sort of position himself as as a punk, or he saw punk, a kindred spirit in punk before he he passed away or was murdered, to be to be honest about it. But it shows the way that the radical gets sort of sucked into the mainstream and kind of cleaned up for the for the rest of us. <laughs> you ready for emails? I am. Send us emails, folks. Shinmusic at Fangraphs.com. We do read all of them, and we answer some of them. This is also the time when I remind you, if you listen to us through the Apple ecosystem, to rate and review the podcast. It helps us out for reasons that have never been adequately explained to me. Our first email comes from Patrick. Patrick says, Assume the baseball season ended at the writing of this email. That means Miguel Cabrera is a free agent needing only five home runs to reach 500 and 64 hits to reach 3,000. How do you evaluate the value of a player who doesn't perform well on the field, but who could help sell tickets in pursuit of such milestones? Basically, do you think a team Cabrera team would sign Cabrera and give him enough at-bats to reach these milestones? It's important to know, first of all, that Cabrera has, I think, two years left on this deal. Yeah, I have such bad news. He's, yeah. not, he's not going anywhere. He's not a anywhere. free agent. Yeah, so it's, he's got two more years. Uh, Miguel Cabrera has... Um, he's not good anymore. Um, he's actually well below average. Um, he's having a horrible season. Um, he has not aged gracefully as, uh, bat only guys often do. Um, but let's, let's for this, for the sake of this conversation, 
Um, looks like Miguel Cabrera's contract does expire at the end of the year. He is a free agent coming off of this miserable year he's having. Um, he's five away from 564 hits away from 3,000. I don't think Miguel Cabrera's pursuit of these milestones sells a whole lot of tickets. I don't think May, maybe say he goes back to the Marlins to do it. Maybe. Then the upside's a little higher because if you get 10 more people into a Marlins game, that's 10 more people that you wouldn't have had for other reasons. Whereas if it were a team that was in contention, they're going to draw those 10 fans. Right. I I think Miguel Cabrera in a perfect world at this point as a free agent would be looking at like an NRI with a good base. You know, like, like we'll bring you in. If you make the team, we'll pay you $3 million. Um, But I don't, you know, or maybe get like, he's going to get the kind of deals that, you know, guys like Matt Adams and CJ Crone get, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, what, what works against him is he has no defensive value at this point, right? You can't, you, you're not even really going to spot him at first base. And the main thing that he might have left is pinch hitting or, or even platoon DHing against left-handed pitchers and and he's not at that at this stage anyway and look let's hope he has a second win because it's been a great career it doesn't seem likely because it's been like four years but the the problem is that that even with 26-man rosters when you have such large pitching staffs do you really have room for a right-handed pinch hitter who you're going to use in such extremely limited situations and and Miguel Cabrera again one of the best right-handed hitters of our generation and guy who won a triple crown and a remarkable player um, never really had a big Q factor either. I just don't, I don't think he sells a ton of tickets. Yeah, I don't think so either. Just to repeat what I did with Javier Baez earlier in the show. And again, it is totally unfair because last year in a lot of ways doesn't count, but over the last two years, 2020 and 2021, you add them up, you get 136 games, 553 plate appearances. So again, something approaching a full season 12 doubles, 0 triples, 18 home runs, 243, 309, 376. We talked about Mark Belanger earlier. Maybe if Mark Belanger is saving 30 runs a year with his glove, you put that bat in the lineup, but that is yeah. not who Miguel Cabrera ever has been or will be. So, yeah, it's it's rough, and if you don't have an organic connection to that guy, that's why I mentioned the Marlins. Yeah, Except, that was a good, smart, yeah, but you're talking about like a sub-700 OPS for right. a bat-only guy. I mean, that's... It's a bat-only guy without a bat. Right, right. So unless you have this incredible sentimental connection to him, and do the Marlins, can they really make that claim? I mean, he hasn't been there as of next year for 15 years. So can can you even make that argument? No. I, I just think kind of like what Fred McGriff conked out around this number of home runs, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just, you don't get to do it. And he'll he'll go to the, the Hall of Fame anyway. And I mean, counting stats are counting stats. And, and I realize people don't, necessarily feel that way but you know look at like and and i don't remember if this overlapped with, i don't think it overlapped with your stay in houston but like craig biggio playing an extra couple of years just to get those three thousand hits and he was miserable like at least from a distance it wasn't fun to watch and it actively hurt the team right um so yeah i don't I, I, they may, there are different players who would maybe get something out of that but i don't think teams would see enough i don't know extra revenue from that uh, out of Miguel Cabrera. Our next email comes from Ricky. Ricky says, I'm aware that the differences between publics and teams internal prospect rankings can vary greatly. What happens when a team realizes that the industry seems to be way higher on one of their guys than a team seems to be? Do you dig deeper to see if there's something you're missing? 
Do you know why the public likes the guy more? Do they think we better trade him before everyone gets to, to our level on him? Anyway, there was, really isn't a great way to end these emails. Um, those are good <laughs> questions. And um, the answer is, 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 is no, you don't dig deeper. I, I, I think as, as if you are on a team or on the team side, um, it is every team's responsibility. Uh, and, and they put a lot of work to know your own players better than anybody else. And, you know, when you're talking about your own players, no matter what um, the, the, the other 29 teams of the industry believes about your players, uh, you know them better. Like you have every single, like you get scouting reports on them every day. You get wrap ups from the minor league games in your mailbox every day, written by the coaching staff, telling you what he did, what he didn't do. Um, like you have constant updates on these guys. You definitely have way more information and, and, and you know, exponentially more information on these players. So you, you, you should feel comfortable in your, in, in your situation. And if you do think that there's a player who the industry is overrating, yeah, that guy becomes a guy you're going to start marketing around. Like, you know, you don't actively say, you don't actively start calling teams and going, Hey, you want Johnson? Um, cause they're going to go, Oh shit, what's wrong with Johnson? But like, he's the kind of guy you, you start saying, yeah, you know, we'd be willing to part with Johnson here if, 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 if trade starts, trade talks start happening. Um, but there are massive disconnects at times. Like I don't, you know, there are teams whose internal prospect rankings would look, um, completely foreign to a list you'd, you'd read at fan graphs or, or, or baseball America or MLB or whatever. Um, and it's it's really and it's an information thing. It's it's really about information and, and how much that they have. And they also have that extra piece that no one else has, which is they know the, they know the player, and they know the makeup, and they know what the work ethics like, and they know kind of they have a good feel for how much the, a a player can change or is willing to change. And, and all players need to be willing to change and willing to to, to evolve. And um, and they have that extra advantage of well of kind of knowing how bumpy or not the path might be to him becoming what you hope he can be i have two questions about that so given that asymmetry of information which applies to everything it also applies to major leaguers and free agents right mm -hmm. like like if a team doesn't want to re-sign a, a a player a free agent a potential free agent who is at a point in his career not the miguel cabrera point but the point where he would still be a viable player going forward and they don't want to sign him you may wonder if they have a different sense of that player than the market does. But putting that aside, what happens in the instance? And we were talking about Jesus Luzardo going to the Marlins before yeah. and that he's a change of scene guy. So the the A's, again, that asymmetry of information applies. They know every molecule of this guy and his approach, what pitches he has, what the approach is, what they have coached him. But there is a non-zero, a high probability that... The Marlins have looked at him and said, you know, there may be an adjustment that we can make that the A's are not seeing or have not been able to execute. And you see that happening all the time when players change organizations. So what is it about the blind spot that also can can kind of get in there when you have that close up look at the player? Um, I mean, there's there's. The A's, and you know, I'm, I'm speculating. I've not talked to anyone with Oakland about Luzardo or, or what they did or didn't do with them. But it's quite possible that the A's have said, like, here's our list of seven things we've tried here. None of them have worked. We're kind of running out of things to try, right? And it's quite possible that the Marlins are saying, this is what we're going to do with them. And the A's have already tried it. And <laughs> and and it's not going to work. And it's also possible that the, the Marlins have something that the A's already tried. But the way they're going to go about it and, and, and execute that will work because it's a different process, right? 
And you you do get into these spots where where you say like we've tried everything like we I understand this guy might be really good but we've tried these things that we try with pitchers like this nothing's worked and and you know we're we're kind of out of gas here and I, I doubt the A's were out of gas on Luzardo I'm sure they had other things that they wanted to try and obviously they were you know eons away from you know for lack of a better term giving up on him or anything like that but they are certainly frustrated and probably running out of options and, and you know, let someone else try and we can bring in, you know, a guy who's going to hit in the middle of our lineup for the playoff stretch. And it's possible, right? It could be as simple as let's say I work for the A's and you work for the Marlins and we are in charge of coaching Jesus Lazardo. So I go to, to him and say, Hey, I really think you should de-emphasize the slider. And he just doesn't like my face. Right. Or he doesn't like <laughs> right. from me. And he says, fuck you, Steve, I'm not going to do that. But then he goes to the Marlins and you, he loves. So you say, Hey, I think you should de-emphasize the slider. Same exact message. But for some reason it comes through because the messenger is different. Yeah. And that, and that message is really important. And it, it's a, a huge part of coaching and a huge part of, of, of kind of, you know, I think, you see a lot of these, you know, kind of, I don't know, let's call them new age pitching coaches right. um, who understand the data. And um, those guys grow on trees. There's a millions of those. The, 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 the really good one, the really tough one to find um, is the guy who can take that data and translate it and communicate it to a pitcher in a way that is effective in a way where the message gets through to them. I have one other question about this in terms of the ethics of this. Now, if a player is hurt and you're going to or has been hurt in the past and you're going to trade that guy, you have sort of an ethical obligation to disclose that. And of course, there's always the exchange of medical information anyway. It tends to look bad if you don't disclose the fact that the pitcher's arm is hanging by a thread. But right. in terms of that personality issue, the clubhouse issue that you're talking about, that obviously an outside team would have a harder time observing. If you're going to trade like catcher Barry Gland, and Barry Gland is a very good prospect, but he's kind of a pain in the ass to work with and offends people. And I'm sure because all kinds, of, I mean, there are a lot of great guys in baseball, obviously, but but there are also all kinds. Do you have an obligation to say to the acquiring team, listen, he's got a great bat, but the reason that we want to move him is that frankly no one can stand to be around him? Um, it's a really interesting question, and, and you have me thinking about it a lot. The, the answer is no. It, <laughs> it's up to it's up to them to kind of work it, and things. You do. I think you have an ethical obligation to talk about this catcher to the to a, a potentially acquiring team if there's some aspect of this that is potentially troublesome that would prevent him from being able to play baseball. You know, like a cross- future criminal indictment, right? If it crosses into that, um, like you have, you, you would you would be obligated to say, "Hey, this guy's still playing, but just so you know, he's subject to an investigation in in blah blah county for something." You know, you would you would have that, but like just the guy is an asshole. Like I'll be honest with you, like you might think the guy is an asshole, and the other team might go, "Yeah, we need like an edgy asshole." You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so too, we're too complacent around here, right? Yeah, we need a guy to fire these dudes up. Um, and, and so, like, you know, one man's asshole is another guy's, you know, intense, you know, edgy, intense guy. You know what I mean? Right. And Everything's so, contextual. Right. And so those are like judgment calls. So unless it was something that could, you know, actually, you know, have the potential to make him unavailable, um, I, you don't reveal that. And, and I, you know, we've talked about it in the past, but teams do, you know, a ton of work on makeup. You know, you get in touch with, uh, you know, all sorts of sources and all sorts of strange places to, to try to, you know, figure out you know how this guy ticks and what you know about him 
and how he's going to fit in and, and how, you know, what his work ethic is like, how open he is to coaching. Does he get along with his teammates? Is he, is he, you know, a pain in the ass? And, you know, I can think about, you know, trades that were made and trades that were not made during my time in baseball. And, um, like a frequent thing that would be asked is like, it was always a question, like, tell me how this guy's going to fit in the clubhouse. You know, that was a question and we had to answer it before, before we're doing things. Is he going to pull a gun on someone? Which has happened, by the way. Oh, which... absolutely. I'm not going to name the. I'm not going to name the player, but I, you know, I, we had in the minor leagues, we had a player pull a knife on a guy. Yeah, it it yeah. happened in the majors with the Angels. I mean, I'm thinking of the 1970s, but still. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that stuff happens. Um. Final email comes from Kyle. Kyle says, "Hey KG, in the 2020 American League Championship Series, Yuli Gurriel was totally lost at the plate." Well, Ledmus Diaz was hot, hot, hot. In hindsight, it feels like giving Diaz more starts at first during that series would have potentially given us the dream Dodgers-Astros World Series rematch. I know that usually the manager is in charge of setting the lineup, but in a playoff series, does the front office have more of a say to potentially flag things like that? Or is it such a small sample size that it's not worth getting involved? Um, front office builds the roster. Manager manages the game. That's That's the first thing to talk about. Um, that's not to say that there is an absolute brick wall between the two sides. Um, there's definitely, you know, it, at no point does a front, and he was actually rumored that the Astros were doing this and they were like, does the, you know, the front office walk into the manager's office and go, here's tonight's lineup. No, absolutely nothing close to that. Um, there are conversations certainly outside of games after and before games and between games on team flights and things like that of, Hey, this guy's hitting really well. And then maybe, you know, have you ever thought about playing him a little bit more and having those kind of like open conversations while respecting the fact that your manager is your manager and your manager's in charge of the game? Um, yes, Yuli Gurriel was totally lost the plate and, and Diaz was hitting well. I think there's also, you know, kind of the beyond the performance of kind of the uh, team vibe, if you will. And I think benching Yuli Gurriel in the middle of ALCS is kind of, there's a, there's a vibe risk that you wouldn't want to make. I think that's the kind of thing you could talk about doing in, for a little bit in June. Uh, but in October during a playoff series, I think that's a tougher thing to ask. It's like playing roulette. You're trying to capture, you know, red two or something. In a seven and, game series. yeah, and, Right. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're trying to, to, to guess on who's going to stay hot and who's going to stay cold. And, and on a normal day, what you're really doing is making that lineup out for potentialities, right? And we know that Guriel has a higher potentiality to be a hitter than Diaz does. And that's mm-hmm. no insult to Diaz, but Guriel is a great hitter. I, I mean, I know how much you enjoy him. I really enjoy him. He's he's just tremendous at what he does, and, and I wish we'd had him around since he was 22 because he'd be at, like, 2,500 hits right now, it seems like. Oh, no question. I, and I've said this before. If Yuli Gurriel, you know, was, was somehow able to um, – and he didn't want to. It's important to talk about where he wasn't able to. Like, he's a he's kind of like a Griffey Jr. in Cuba. His father was a, is a legend in the, in the country, right. uh, and he was definitely attached to Cuban baseball. But, like, if he somehow came to the United States at 21 um, – I'm absolutely convinced that Jay Jaffe would be writing articles about his <laughs> jaws and all of his jaws numbers would, would, would scream that this guy's a no-brainer Hall of Famer. Like, I, I think he would be, like, not, I, don't, I don't just say Hall of Famer. I think he'd be an absolute undebatable Hall of Famer. Like, you know, we know he's getting in. What's the rest of the vote going to look like? The, the situation that confuses me about that, that I think must also confuse front offices, right? And it's the same problem of trying to understand when it's going to end. Like in the, the 2012 playoffs, Curtis Granderson, who's another player I really enjoyed for a lot of years. Oh, of course. Was 
swinging at balls and missing by, and this is not an exaggeration, a yard. And it almost looked like he was swinging with his eyes closed. So for the, the two rounds that the Yankees were in that year, and he was a reason they were only in two rounds, he went three for 30 and struck out 16 times. He was super miserable. And he, I mean, it, it, I'm not saying he had the yips, but something mechanically was very, very off. So the question then becomes, how fast can the player make the adjustment? Can he make it in these five to seven games? Because if he does make it, then he's a 30 homer guy and and a guy who walks a lot and so on. We would like to have him in the lineup. He's obviously better than the fourth outfielder who's going to replace him. But you don't know. And I, I would think the temptation is to keep betting that, hey, today is the day that Curtis Granderson is going to be Curtis Granderson. Today is the day that Guriel is going to be Guriel because you're you're maybe getting something more reliable if you opt for the other guy, but also less potentially explosive. Right. And and Guriel did have some mechanical issues that time, but it's important to note that I mean, one of the one of the keys to Guriel's greatness is, is he's is is an absolutely innate ability to put a bat on a baseball, right? Um, you know, he's a fantastic contact guy. He does have some, you know, a little bit of pop, but like he's a fantastic contact guy. His career strikeout rate is is just a little over ten percent, which in today's game is is insane, right? But you look at what happened in the postseason, even last year, he was bad. Like there's no other way to put it. But like in in the in the ALDS against Oakland, he was one for fifteen, but had zero strikeouts. Well, he wasn't one for fifteen with nine strikeouts. He was one fifteen with zero strikeouts. Um, so was he? Was he making weak contact? Or it was. Is it it just... was bad. It was bad contact. And and even in the in the ALCS, he was three for twenty one with two strikeouts. Like he wasn't. He wasn't flailing at balls. He was just not hitting them well. So the, but so that, that the contact skill was still there. And I think that kind of helped you say, like you said, you know, this is the day he's going to turn around. Like I believe. I don't believe that hot streaks are simply random. I don't think hot streaks are just a guy getting good dice rolls on his Stratomatic card uh, <laughs> and going 12 for 17. I think guys do get hot, and I think at the same time guys get cold. The only problem with hot streaks and cold streaks is it's just they're not predictive, right? You don't know when they're going to end. Um, and at some point, you got to kind of ride with what you got. Yeah, you can't. You can't capture it. If you could, it would be a very different game because obviously we can look back in hindsight and say like, hey, you know, player A was awesome in April and June and kind of sucked the other month. So let's only play him in April and June. But it doesn't work that way. And and as you said, you don't know when it's going to start and you don't know when it's going to stop. So, I mean, you hope that your managers and coaches are looking at these guys and seeing the mechanical aspects of it and saying, you know, he does look hitterish today. He does look like he's adjusting to that off-speed pitch better. Keston Hura has finally figured it out, honestly, right, mean right. it this time. But it, it doesn't always happen. But you, you can't blame them for chasing it when the alternatives are less appealing. So those are our emails. Again, email us. You sent good ones this week. Keep them coming. Chinmusic at Fangrass.com. It's time to catch up with Stephen Goldman. Stephen, what's I am, up? I am functional. I am... Here, I uh, as last time, I am a uh, the gray editor at BP, which basically means I answer like the Magic Eight Ball. I answer any questions asked of me, and if they're not asked, I don't say anything at all. And uh, for the last few months, I've been or a couple of months, I've been writing a column a week, which I wasn't doing. I was more spotting here and there, kind of pinch hitting, doing the Smokey Burgess thing. And I said, you know what? I want to go back to 
writing every week. So I've I've been writing a, a lot, which is is flexing some old muscles. And of course, the the infinite inning goes on. I am up to episode one ninety five every week. Uh, conversation. It's been about four years, two stories per show, so almost four hundred stories. And uh, much much like our our guest this week here on this show. I do a Patreon thing where, uh, I mean, you can listen to the show or not, I guess, but I took my old BP f- feature, The Dead Player of the Day, and uh, I write <laughs> a, a profile. Sometimes it, it's a capsule. Sometimes it slides into biographical essay, and, uh, you know, Patreon supporters get to, to read those, and, and uh, you know, hopefully people enjoy them. They're, they're a little bit different than uh, what you can get other places. So, you know, I mean, same old, same old. It, it's it's been a pandemic year, you know? I mean, it's it's not I, I, I haven't gone to the Louvre. And what are you um what are you focusing on in your weekly column? Is there a is there a, is it this is just what I want to write about this week or is it like I or, or are you you know putting yourself in any sort of silo? Well, you know, I, I think you know this, but a, a long time ago, I kind of decided not to be the groin pull guy. I try not to write <laughs> about sort of the mechanical baseball stuff. There are a lot of people who do that well. And I think what my appeal to people has always been, or the thing that they hate alternatively, is is kind of the the way that I can be a salad bar. And I can, I can throw in a whole lot, cross-reference a whole lot of things because of sort of my diversity of education and, and interest and stuff. And, and to be honest, I've written a lot, and, and this is reflected in the infinite inning too, I've written a lot about baseball and race. I have written a lot about the pandemic and the, the, the possibility, you know, what the, the risks of vaccination. And what I try to do, because I do know a lot of history, I don't like to write, and, and you've heard me use this joke before, I never like to write, Babe Ruth, he was quite a guy, because that's, <laughs> that's, that's boring. And like, if you're, if you're into Babe Ruth, great, I just wrote something for you. You can, you know, but for the, the vast majority of people, they want to know what is affecting me now. And so am, if I'm to, to reach for Babe Ruth, I would say, well, this thing that we just saw in a baseball game this week is reflected in something that happened to him. And this helps us understand what we're looking at now. And to, to just give one example, and this really pissed off some commentators, I talked about three players who played about a hundred years ago, who all got tuberculosis, which there was no vaccine for at that time. So if you got it, you got it. And it killed millions of people. I mean, it's one of the oldest diseases that people get. It's not a virus, it's a bacteria. Thus, antibiotics do work on it if it's not resistant. But Addy Joss, who's in the Hall of Fame, got it, died mid-career. It went mm. to his brain. We think of it as a respiratory disease like COVID, but it went to his brain. It destroyed it. It baked his brain. He died mid-career. Christy Mathewson got it at the end of his career, but only made it to age 45 and underwent the torments of hell because they didn't have treatments for this back then. So they did things to him like intentionally puncturing one of his lungs, shoving shoving a needle through his ribcage and deflating one of his lungs because they thought if you kind of let it rest for a while by turning it off that you would get better. Well, I don't know if he did or didn't. He, He lived a lot longer with it than people thought he would. But it, it, he really, he really suffered. It sounds like the most miserable thing to go through. And then there, there was a, a third player. His name was Shershot Fred Dunlap, who was considered the great second baseman of the late 19th turn of the 20th century. And I did not know this was a thing. And do not Google pictures of this, Kevin. I, there are things that I have done for my work that no one should do. 
but you can get tuberculosis of your gastrointestinal system, and essentially his rectum went back on him. He uh-huh. was killed by tuberculosis of the ass, essentially. His, his landing gear fell out. And all these players, had they had a vaccine, obviously they would not be with us anymore because that was 120 years ago. Lifespans are not that long. But had they been vaccinated, they would have finished their careers. They would have lived longer, had more enjoyment. And instead, they basically, between age age 30, whatever they would have had over age 30, or in Christy Mathewson's case, essentially over that, over age 35 or so, or it was all misery. So they would they would have been better off. And I, I was just trying to say, hey, this is the downside of not taking advantage of the the progress that that medicine has has made. And someone wrote that it was a thinly disguised uh, advocacy column for vaccination. And, and my response was, no, it's not thinly disguised at all, actually. It's, right. a, it's a direct line. But, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that I write. I try to write about sort of the, the greater world and talk about how baseball is everything and everything is baseball. And you can see that the game is, is a microcosm of our society at, at large and, and derive a lot of lessons from it. Let me ask you a question. You might, I, I'm putting on the spot here and I, I apologize for that, but you, you might know this as, as a, as a baseball historian. Um, you know, obviously with the global pandemic there, you know, especially when it was first really rolling, um, I think a lot of people learned, including myself, uh, a lot more about 1918 and the Spanish flu. Right. Um, how was baseball affected by that? It's hard to say because that they got lucky in a way there there was the, the i mean we we could talk about this for a long time so i'll try to condense it but baseball didn't know how to respond to the first world war and and america got into it late obviously so baseball was trying to figure out do we shut down do we keep playing what do we do and eventually the government said no shut down so so baseball did the, shut down i didn't even know this so baseball shut down during the smash flu it shut down they truncated the 1918 season. They they made a kind of deal that it's it's a thing called the worker fight order. The government said everyone who is of military age, and that includes ball players, either get into the military or go into a defense important industry. You know, help make guns or or bombs or so on, but you can't play. So they made a deal, I think, to get into September, and at that point they had the World Series, and so they everything in terms of getting people packed into a stadium stopped just in time for the pandemic to begin. So they got very lucky in a sense. And and, and as a result of this, the 1919 season started late too. So if you look at that season, which everybody thinks about in terms of the, the Black Sox and everything, they didn't mm. play 154 games. They played somewhat fewer than that. Okay. But they didn't have people in the ballparks when it was super bad. And we saw in places like, not me personally, because I'm not 200 years old, but in places like very famously, people talked about about this a lot at the beginning of the pandemic last year. In cities like St. Louis, the public health people shut things down very fast and they didn't have the same infection rate. Whereas in Philadelphia, they kept things open and held parades and things like that. And people were dropping like flies. And it's such a fortunate thing that the people there were people in baseball wanted to keep it open there were also people who from the first shot was fired was like shut it down just shut it down it's very strange like ban johnson who founded the american league was just like nope it's over done we don't want to do baseball anymore it's very different than what we saw last year with the the major league owners trying to to keep things going and uh it they just got very very lucky because players would have died and fans would have died 
Um, and and so 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 the the eighteen season was cut short. The nineteen season was delayed. Right. Um, did we lose a lot of players? In terms of of the in terms disease? of the flu itself, yeah. I don't think so. And uh, we did we did lose some players in the war itself. Right. Not anybody n- not anybody active. The famous one or sort of obscurely famous one is Eddie Grant, who was a Harvard Eddie Grant, who was a Giants utility guy before the war, who went and uh, and got uh, shell landed on him as he was drinking a cup of coffee and cut him in half. Um, the other the uh, the other famous player who went but survived was Hank Gowdy of the Braves, who was a, a catcher and got some Hall of Fame votes on 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 that basis. And I could kind of see putting him in. He kind of led the parade for for uh, players joining up and, and was a patriotic guy. But no, I don't think not among the major leaguers. There were some guys who got it and might have been a little debilitated by it. Mm-hmm. But we didn't lose players to that. And it may very well be that like the current pandemic if you were young and vigorous you were you know you you had a a better chance of 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 fighting it but i mean that was a really vicious virus and and we have to be really afraid of those coming back that that particular kind of flu that's why everyone worries about it every year because unlike covid which is is pretty simple as i understand it on a on a virus basis Flu is incredibly complex and much harder to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Stephen. Well, I'll I'll tell you what I I've been listening to a lot of books. I always read a lot, but one of the things that I've been doing to to cope with my own anxiety and stuff like that is at night. For about an hour before I go to sleep, I often play some kind of dumb game on my phone. Just lie down, play the game. But I felt guilty well, yeah, about it. First of all, before we get to this, I know what stupid game you're playing on your phone. Okay, we all do I, it. We all do, do it. I have, it's fine. Okay. All right. This this is sort of embarrassing. So there there are two games. All right. One is the DC Legends superhero game in which you collect superheroes, rank them up, and then fight other people. And it is totally masturbatory because you fight people to collect heroes, and when you get the heroes, then you fight people to collect more heroes. And there's just no there there. It's very mm-hmm. low quality time. The other one is and and this is perhaps even more mindless but it has a legacy aspect <laughs> to it is a football game called Retro Bowl and it's a very simple arcade style football game but you do get to carry players from year to year draft players trade players and put the odd player in the hall of fame and it I'm making it sound like like football manager or or something like that or baseball mogul it's not it's 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 really really basic but I played it takes about two minutes to play a game or a quarter. So mm-hmm. you can get through a game in, in uh, def- you don't really play defense. So that goes really fast. You can get through a game in like six minutes. And a- again, it's low quality time, but it, it helps me get away from myself. And so w- what I've done to kind of enhance that time was I got an Audible subscription and I've been listening to about a book a week in addition to everything else that I try to read. <laughs> And I've been learning a lot. I mean, some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. But uh, I, I just like kind of mainline information into my brain while I'm doing this. And, and sort of the, the emotional stuff goes away. And I, I'm just sort of a, a vessel to receive knowledge. Anything stand out? When do you wait? When are you, when are you doing this? Like, when are you listening to a book? Two to four in the morning. <laughs> Usually. Are you, um, are, you, are you lying in bed staring at the ceiling? Well, no, I'm staring at the phone. Essentially, I have I have Bluetooth headphones. My wife is dozing next to me, 
And uh, I, I put them on, and for about an hour, I, I listened to a chapter or two of a, a book and press buttons. This, this is very personal stuff, I realize. But, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's clean stuff. And so I've listened to all kinds of stuff, fiction, a lot of nonfiction, obviously. And actually, the book that has really stuck in my mind, and this, this is kind of dark stuff, but it, it dovetails with some of the, the social stuff we've been talking about. And some things that have happened in baseball, too, unfortunately, was a, a true crime book, not a book that I, a, a genre that I usually engage with, but it's called If You Tell. And it is about a, a, a real person. Her name was Shelly Notick. She is in jail in uh, Oregon or Washington State. And she's, I guess, considered a serial killer. But what it really is, is she was a, a sociopath who, who kind of would lure people into her orbit and then slowly destroy their will and torture them to death. But not torture them to death like by putting them on a rack or hitting them with things, but just sort of demeaning them until they died. And it's a very scary... She's a very scary person, and it's a very scary book because these people who were so badly abused lost the willpower to get away. They could have, in many cases, gotten away early in the process, but instead she made them dependent, and she destroyed their their kind of sense of self Mm -hmm. until a, a sort of Stockholm syndrome kind of kicked in, and they basically passively allowed her to destroy them. And also she was like, I mean, just as a, a sidecar, that's super horrible to her kids. She had right. three three kids and uh, was for it, actually, and uh, killed one of them. So, Jesus. like, just really a, a horror show of a person. But I, I think the thing that I just took away from it is you're—and this is very often a case with, with people who are uh, abused and in domestic violence situations, too, something that I've talked about a lot on The Infinite Inning. And unfortunately, it seems like we have to talk about in baseball virtually like every other day. You can't go away from it because as soon as you sort of say, OK, I'm not going to talk about Trevor Bauer for the, for this week, then Starlin Castro comes up. There really is sort of a, a problem endemic in our society. It seems like that, again, baseball being a microcosm is mirroring. But one of the things that I think is very hard for people who are outside of an abusive relationship to understand is they continually ask, well, why doesn't he or she leave? Why don't they just take care of themselves and get out? Yeah, and it's not that easy at all. It's very hard. The other person kind of gets their claws into your brain. And once that happens, you lose a certain amount of objectivity. And it, it is hard for us on the outside to get it. And the, I mean, there but for the grace of God go we, essentially. And it's very scary to think that that could happen to you or, or happen to anyone. Hmm. So cheery note. <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'm going to go more lighthearted. Um, we're going to talk about a television series that is on HBO Max. Okay. Uh, and it is called The White Lotus. Um, the White Lotus is done by um, a guy named Michael White, who you might know. Did you ever see School of Rock, the Jack Black movie? Yes. So remember the guy Jack Black lives with who's with Sarah Silverman, kind of the blonde dorky guy? Yes, was he? He might have also been the director of that, right? Right. He also wrote and directed that, which is what he does for the most part is write and direct, as opposed to to to, to act. And anyway, he wrote and directed this, um, and it is uh, it it takes place at a at a resort in Hawaii called the White Lotus. Um, it starts uh, the series starts at an airport in Hawaii, and and you know one guy who looks fairly miserable, um, and then a couple <laughs> of of tourists who start talking to him at the gate, which is you know. He's, he's clearly already annoyed and they say oh we 
heard there was a murder there. He's like, yeah, they're loading the body into the plane. And he's clearly very upset. And he's like, you know, fuck off. I don't want to talk to you. And then, you know, and then they cut back to a week before of people arriving at the White Lotus. And you're going to figure out what happened. You don't know who died yet. Um, it's funny, but it's also very clever. It's very well written. It's really smart. I, I'm kind of shocked at how much I like this thing. Um, and the characters are great. And so, you know, you have um, you have a, a, a kind of messed up modern family um, with where the wife is kind of a, a, a you know, multi, multi-millionaire tech executive. Um, the husband's kind of a, a mess who thinks he might have cancer and then and learns things about his family while he's there. Um, you know, a classic kind of teenage son who just stares at screens all day uh, and a daughter who showed up with her friend and the daughter and her friend are both like kind of like read, you know, Freud and Nietzsche and the Communist Manifesto <laughs> kind of as an affectation. They're not really even reading it, you know, and, and, and complain about everything. And um yeah, and then there's a, the, a newlywed couple of this guy who, you know, there's a kind of a a financial mismatch in the couple where he has a lot of money and she did not come from money and, you know, she still wants to have her career as a writer and he doesn't necessarily want her to do that. Um, there's a woman who's there alone, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who uh, you might have seen, like, in Best in Show. Oh, um, I mean, she yeah. she is an MVP in anything that she She's shows up in. She's unbelievable. She's like just her. There's, I guess, there's six episodes. We're all, there's we're, we've only gotten three of them so far. They come out once a week. Um, her performance in episode three alone deserves an Emmy. Like she's unbelievable. She she's just like steals every scene she's in and absolutely like chews things up. She's unbelievably good, and you can tell. And I was talking to to my wife about this, like. I just feel like if you hire her to do something, you just go, hey, here's the script, go, we trust you, you know, and, 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 um, and she's just unbelievable. And every character is really well fleshed out. Like the, the manager of the, of the resort itself is this kind of neurotic Australian who's, who's trying to keep everybody happy and at the same time miserable himself. Um, it's, it's incredibly well-written and clever. And well, I thought it would just be kind of toss away entertainment, but we're really, really into it. So it's, it's the White Lotus and it's on think- HBO Max. You know, Jennifer Coolidge is in all the Christopher Guest right. sort of semi-improv movies. And I, I was just talking about this on on this movie on uh, the other podcast. I know it's your favorite, Everything is Broken, which I do with, with Mike Farron and, and Craig Calcaterra talking about Bob Dylan. But we were talking about A Mighty Wind, which talks about sort of the, the folk acts. or, or is It's not really a parody. It's more of like an affectionate. No, no. And, and, and I mean, it is a comedy, but it, it's it's sort of an affectionate kind of ribbing of yes. the the folk acts of the early 60s and she is in it in a very small part she's not one of the singers but there there is a scene where people are at a at a party and uh i think bob balaban says like as a tribute to this like i would like everybody to hum because we were all about singing so everybody hum a note and they cut to her like there's a long shot of people just going hum and they cut to her and she she does something with her mouth, with her face, with the way that she is just humming a note, which turns this non-moment into a moment. It's it's. I think about that as much as I think about any other aspect of the movie. There's something hilariously funny about it, and it's it's just as a result of of her sort of changing up her presence a little bit. She's amazing. Yeah, she's just utterly phenomenal, utterly phenomenal in this. Um, I think we're done here, Stephen. I know you have to go record your Bob Dylan podcast. In I fact, I, I just got a text from our mutual friend, Mike Barron, that said, <laughs> Stephen has another commitment. Let's go, Kevin. Um, so 
we've done our time here, and uh, I do want to thank you for joining me. Oh, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It's a it's an honor and a privilege every time. And uh, if you want, you know, make sure to listen to Infinite Inning. I wouldn't recommend the Dylan thing. You know, it's just <laughs> you don't. No one wants to listen. You don't want to listen to Bob Dylan. Why would we do, people talk we do about get Bob some, Dylan? We get a little baseball in at the end every time. <laughs> we do. We have to. And so, uh, yeah, keep keep an eye on all of Stephen's work, and you can read his weekly column over over at BP. Uh, thanks again to Lucas McNally. If you want to support his independent film Main Noir, you go to mainnoir.com. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next week, probably a day early for reasons that will be explained. Now.